It's a hot summer's day, 48 BC. Beneath the scorching Syrian sun, Queen Cleopatra is rallying a band of mercenaries in a desert camp. At just 21 years old, Cleopatra was already an orphan and an exile, having experienced both extraordinary fortune and devastating setbacks. Far from the opulent ebony doors and the onyx floors of her home, she finds herself in a modest tent. It's been a year of relentless fleeing and survival for her, transversing through Middle Egypt, Palestine, and southern Syria. Cleopatra was no stranger to the art of military strategy and leadership. A skill passed down through generations of women in her family, and now it was her turn to prove herself. As the formidable enemy forces, comprised of pirates, bandits, outlaws, exiles, and fugitive slaves, gathered close to the Egyptian frontier. Cleopatra prepared for a battle she seemed destined to lose. The odds were stacked against her. However, Cleopatra was determined to defy fate. With her 13-year-old brother, Ptolemy, as the nominal commander of their shared kingdom, she had inherited the throne of Egypt. But their fractured relationship led to her banishment from the very kingdom they were meant to co-rule as husband and wife. Now, as the battle loomed, her position grew increasingly desperate. Cleopatra stood off stage, awaiting her moment to launch herself into the annals of history. And throughout the Mediterranean, the air of tension hung heavy, pregnant with omens, rumens, and importance. It was a time of nervous exasperation, where one could experience the dizzying mix of anxiety, elation, empowerment, and fear in a single afternoon. In early July, Cleopatra received news that the Roman Civil War, pitting the invincible Julius Caesar against the indomitable Pompey the Great, was about to collide with her own fate. For generations, the Romans had served as protectors of the Egyptians' monarchs, and Pompey had been a close friend to Cleopatra's father. Both she and her estranged brother owed their positions to Pompey's support, but fate took a treacherous turn when Cleopatra discovered that those that owed her favors were just as likely to be her murderers. Pompey, rooted by... Caesar, and desperate for refuge, sought safety within the walls of Alexandria. Uh, however, Ptolemy's advisor saw an opportunity to curry favor with Caesar and decided to behead Pompey, presenting his severed head to the Roman conqueror. Caesar, though initially horrified by the gruesome spectacle, was not deterred. He arrived in Alexandria, the Egyptian capital, in pursuit of his rival, bringing with him a storm of chaos and unrest. It's amidst this turbulent backdrop that Cleopatra's destiny became entwined with the fate of Egypt and the Roman Empire. In a desperate move to secure her position, she took a calculated risk, a gamble that would change the course of history. With audacity, wit, and enigmatic charm that captivated many, Cleopatra set out to meet the Roman general and stake her claim to the throne. Who was the real Cleopatra? Throughout history, Cleopatra has been the subject of various interpretations. She had been depicted in different forms, including as an asteroid, a video game character, a sex symbol, and Elizabeth Taylor. Shakespeare famously acknowledged Cleopatra's complexity. Cleopatra's legacy is often remembered for the wrong reasons. She was a capable and astute ruler, skilled with military matches and adept governance. In an era where women rulers were not uncommon, Cleopatra stood out as the sole female leader who played a significant role in Western affairs. She possessed immense wealth, enjoyed a level of prestige unparalleled, Cleopatra's alliances with Julius Caesar, Mark Anthony, shaped her reign and ignited a love affair that captivated the ancient world. We'll unravel the complexities of these relationships and examine the dynamics of power and influence between her and these two powerful Roman figures, and how her interactions with them would seal her fate and impact the course of history.
In today's episode of A Conversation Before the World Ends, we delve deep into the captivating story of the last queen of Egypt. Join us as we uncover the secrets, the betrayal, the triumphs of a woman who defied expectation, challenged empires, and left an incredible mark on history. Our journey takes us through the opulent courts of Alexandria, the treacherous political landscapes of ancient Rome, the scorching sands of Egypt, to explore the life and reign of one of history's most intriguing figures. Okay, guys, and welcome back to another episode of A Conversation Before the World Ends. I'm your host, Kareem. And I'm Eamon. So, Aim, um, like we said this week, we're going to try to do something that's a bit... Uh, light-hearted. To... <laughs> I did say light-hearted. <laughs> that's what you promised the world. Yeah, but... Uh... Yes, I can't wait to see what it's about. <laughs> um, How light-hearted is light-hearted? Look, it's lighthearted in the sense where the topic doesn't really involve a lot of like uh, genocide and war and like I, I mean lighthearted like it's not heavily political. So that was the plan, and the plan was going to be something lighthearted. So I thought, okay, we need to focus on the leader because we haven't really done anyone since Ivan, where we broke down the character of it, like character study. Mm-hmm. And I was going to go with Ramses. Ivan Moody. Yeah, Ivan Moody, mm-hmm. and I was going to go with Ramses the second. Uh, but then I noticed that we really haven't focused on a female leader or okay. a female ruler. And I thought maybe it's cool if we, because of all the drama that was happening with Cleopatra, we might as well like actually break down Cleopatra's life and actually learn about her and not the politics of today's politics around her. Mm-mm. You know, with, uh, with that. Give her the respect she deserves. Exactly, because I think she is a bit of a misunderstood character. Cleopatra has always been, uh, from even from back when, uh, she's always been used for to propagate something, right? Yeah. Um, then, like, she's a feminist icon. She's a temptress, seductress, you know what I mean? Yeah, so with that said, I thought we'd give her the... And try to give her an unbiased look on Cleopatra's life. I was hoping you would say, you know, female leader, misunderstood. She is. I just said that. She's Hillary le- Clinton, you know? <laughs> <laughs> I don't know who created Pokemon Go. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> the future first female president of the United States of America. It lives right in my head that um that tweet. That tweet. All right, uh, so let's go with Cleo. So, let's start things off. Part 1, the dynasty. One of the most remarkable aspects of the Ptolemaic dynasty is their ability to intertwine the Mas- their Macedonian heritage with a fabricated connection to ancient Egypt. This serves as a basis of their claim to the throne and also allows them to justify their controversial practice of sibling marriage. Damn. Uh, while sibling rivalry and conflict are not uncommon in Macedonian aristocracy, the idea of incest, marrying siblings, is kind of a foreign concept, right? Mm-hmm. But yet the Ptolemies 
a foreign concept to the Greeks, that is. Yet the Ptolemies embraced this extreme form of intermarriage. Uh, what did the Greeks think of cousin marriage? I don't know. That's a very good question. I didn't look into that, but I know they looked down on uh, incest. Yeah, for sure. But like, would they deem it or was was the cousin stuff just recent? Maybe it was recent, I don't know. Mm. Yet, possibly for the sake of simplicity in maintaining and controlling and minimizing p- potential problems to the throne. So like, we might just keep it within the family. To avoid problems of succession. Yeah, but have potential deformities. Yeah. Uh, oh, yeah, by the way, before uh, we... before we Cousin marriage was not only allowed, but encouraged in the ancient Greece. Okay. First cousin. First, and I guess, yeah. I guess that, that practice has recently been... Outlawed. Okay, before we go any further, uh, let's give a trigger warning on today's episode, because I'm pretty sure everyone knows that Cleopatra's story, there's going to be talks about suicide. There's going to be talks about um, murder. So this is a trigger warning. So this, so yeah, so this is a trigger warning. Let's just be on the safe side and give it out. So back to the story. Which yeah. you, so we we speak about genocide. It's lighthearted. Yeah, okay. Yeah, okay. Which is... Removing... See? My cancellation is not going to be as bad as yours. That's true. <laughs> okay, look. The thing is... um. So much for lighthearted. <laughs> I, th- I said it was going to be lighthearted, but then I decided otherwise. Because I thought you were going to take over this week. I did. And I was going to take. I want to talk about love. Okay, and we, but then <laughs> for some reason we're doing Cleo. Eamon's topic is going to be next week. With each generation, the Ptolemies descended deeper into a spiral of pillage and murder. Even by the colorful standards of the Macedonian era, there's a lot of power struggle within that family, right? For example, mothers would send troops against their own sons, sisters would wage war against their brothers, and Cleopatra's great-grandmother was embroiled in not just one, but two civil wars, fighting against both her parents, and then later on she would fight against her own children. This was the Ptolemies that controlled... I mean, it just goes to show, you know, one thing that ruins family, right? Power. Sex. <laughs> and sex. <laughs> so, so a quick, like, a quick, quick background. So, we all know that the Ptolemies are... Well, Ptolemies spelled P-T. Yeah, with P-T. With a silent P. With a silent P, yeah. Uh, Ptolemy was, or the Ptolemy the Elder, the first Ptolemy one, was uh, Alexander, was one of Alexander's... Um, friends slash soldiers who went to conquer with Alexander and when Alexander the Great passed away because there was no heir or technically because they killed his son uh, they divided Greece between them and Ptolemy would take over Egypt and mm. this would be the establishment of the Ptolemaic dynasty yeah. so it came out of Alexander the Great like we were saying um, <clears throat> yeah so there was a civil war between like she would ha- Cleopatra's great grandmother would have a civil war between her parents and then another civil war with her children. The inscribers of monuments would always find themselves in predicament because they wouldn't know who to get who to dedicate the monument to because there was so much infighting, civil war, that you didn't know who was actually reigning king. Um, and the thing is, with every reigning king, you know, the calendar resets to one, to year one, right? So you find that there are times where like in two years into a king's reign, it will go back to year one because someone else took over. So it was short-lived. Very one. short-lived. Of course, the Ptolemaic dynasty would always try to seek a sense of legitimacy by trying to venerate Alexander the Great. Alexander the Great is the person you go back to. If you could find a way to bring yourself back to Alexander the Great, you're pretty much finding a way to um, position yourself as the as the true ruler. So, of- uh, was it their like uh, go to? Was it their go to in order to reclaim their? stake in the throne? Yeah, kind of like um, you know how like later on and. It's when how like um, Roman emperors would try to go back to Caesar 
to to legitimize themselves that they are like descend somehow yeah, yeah, related yeah, for to Caesar. Sure, for sure, yeah. So Cleopatra, of course. <clears throat> Cleopatra, oh, what people would call her is Cleo. Cleo. For those who don't know. Yeah. Her her close circle would call her Cleo. Cleo. Yeah. <laughs> but you guys can't say because you don't know her. Yeah. Only people closer can call her Cleo. Cleopatra is of course the most famous member of the Ptolemaic dynasty, and she's a product of a very intriguing lineage. However, it's worth noting that despite being born in Egypt, Cleopatra was never considered Egyptian by the people. She she'll always be remembered as a Macedonian queen, and that's one thing we need to remember is that Cleopatra is a Macedonian. You know, being an expat totally suits me. The speculation of who her mother was is also very um, is debated, but ch- chances are it could she could have been like born out of incest. Ch- so she's a child of incest. Most yeah, likely. so she's she's most likely Greek. Which um, so she is. It's not just most likely she is. She is she Greek. Was Greek yeah. yeah. Cleopatra hails as one of the Macedonian queens with her great great aunt Cleopatra the third, being a notorious figure. Um, <clears throat> in the year. In the year 81 BC, the Ptolemaic dynasty is plunged into a crisis with the death of Ptolemy IX. After years of bitter family feud and a scarcity of legitimate male heirs, it leaves the throne without an obvious successor, right? So the daughter of Ptolemy IX and the widow of his brother Ptolemy X (laughs) ascends to power and adopts the name Cleopatra Bernice. Uh, To maintain the Ptolemaic tradition, she agrees to marry her young stepson slash nephew Ptolemy XI. However, the couple proves to be ill-suited for each other, and Ptolemy, as the natural son of Ptolemy X, believes that he should rule in his own right. There's a lot of clips on this stepson situations right now. <laughs> yeah. Sorry, don't clear that. <laughs> it's all from there. Yeah. One influence. Yeah. Uh, just three weeks after their wedding, Ptolemy's impatience leads him to murder his bride and seize the throne. So he kills Cleopatra Bernice and becomes the sole king of Egypt. But his reign is short-lived because the Alexandrian mob swiftly apprehend him the next day. They drag him into a gymnasium where he meets his demise. Man, it was just chaos. Chaos. Egypt once again finds itself in the need of a ruler. So the double murder plunges Egypt into turmoil and the Alexandrians who dared to kill the king chosen to them by the Romes started having problems that Rome might finally annex Egypt. So they had to find a new king as swiftly as possible. The problem is the only one who could claim take claim was the aunt of Cleopatra Bernice. Her name was Cleopatra Selene. But Cleopatra... What was the last names about? Uh, they would add a last name as a way to venerate themselves or differentiate themselves. Okay. Um, usually... You so find... like two names? like Yeah, yeah. Okay. So Cleopatra Selene's connection to... See... So, sorry, did they not want to be the third, second, third? Or... It's easy for them to do was it. Was that what they did back yeah, in the day? Back okay. then, it was just that. Like, you find that Cleopatra, the one that we're talking about, her name wasn't really Cleopatra, like... She had another name. Her name was Cleopatra Thea. Okay, got you, got you. Which I think is Cleopatra Goddess. But that, we'll get into that later. Her connection with with ISIS. Um, uh-uh. <laughs> no, no, not, <laughs> not, not the Islamic State. <laughs> Just take a second. <laughs> um, not the Islamic State, yeah, the Egyptian much. Goddess. <laughs> um <laughs> So Cleopatra is one big basic theory in nutshell. <laughs> yeah, you're doing all this to connect it to ISIS. How Cleopatra was connected to ISIS. So Cleopatra Selene, of course, because she was connected to Syria, it kind of made her sons unsuitable to take over Egypt. So they had to bypass Cleopatra Selene, and the crown was offered to Paul- Ptolemy's ninth two illegitimate kids, kids born out of mit- mistresses. Uh, so this is where the question of Cleopatra's. Uh, how 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 much of a Greek she is if her grandfather was born from a mistress? Was the mistress Egyptian? 
Okay, gotcha, gotcha. Got me. So they were both living in Syria at the time. The elder son returns to Egypt and ascends to the throne as Ptolemy, Theos, Philapter, Philadolphus, later adding the part Neos Dionysus to his name. We would know him as Ptolemy XII, and he's crowned as king on 676 BC. And he seeks to maintain the family lineage by counting his regional years from the death of his father. So he completely erases Cleopatra Bernice's reign and her, and her husband who killed her. As a consolation, the younger son is given the crown of Cyprus. So his younger brother is given Cyprus to go hang out. However, the Romans are displeased with these rapid changes and refuse to acknowledge the new kings. Ptolemy's 13th association with Dionysus is this kind of a political move because Dionysus was known as twice born and is revered as the conqueror of the Eastern world. And there's a deep connection to the Egyptian fertility god king Osiris because Osiris is also twice born. Yeah. So by aligning himself with Dionysus, Ptolemy established a connection between the ancestors and Alexander he the Great. He seemed like he knew what he was doing. He seemed pretty smart. This would be played again with Cleopatra. This way of like associating a god to you or a goddess to you. The same way how Alexander the Great would associate Amun, first Zeus, and then Amun when he came to Egypt. Julius Caesar would do the same tactic. Uh, Ptolemy embraces his flamboyant aspect of Dionysus worship. His enthusiastic participation earns him the nickname Elutes or Flute Player. They don't know if it's actually for his music talent or because he kind of looked like a flute player, which kind of had a connotation back in the day. What was it, sexuality-wise? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So this is the world that Cleopatra was born into, right? And contrary to popular belief, like we said, Cleopatra is not Egyptian. She's not even a pharaoh. And she's not directly related to Alexander the Great. These are the three common misconceptions we have about Cleopatra. Egyptian women also had a kind of a unique freedom back then, and they had a lot of rights before her time. They have the right to make their own marriages. They have the right to inherit. And they, ha- they have the right to own uh, property independently. They had the right to divorce. And they had the right to be supported after divorce. Also, women ha- held significant economic, social, and religious role in Egyptian societies. And they were also like scripts that showed that women would initiate lawsuits in their name. I wonder what set them back. And they served as priests in their temples. I wonder what set them back in Egypt. I wonder what set them back too. What could have come after the Romans... Well, it could be the Romans. Romans are very patriarchal. But it's, prior to that... But it's definitely the Romo, Romo, the Roman Christian uh, Judaism. The Judeo-Christian, yeah. That's what started putting down women. So this is the world that Cleopatra was born into. You know, This is where Cleopatra would come to live in. Part two, birth of the queen. Cleopatra VII is born in the winter of 70 BCE or 69 BCE. Uh, historical records fail to document this crucial moment, so we kind of have to deduce her birth year indirectly by working backwards from what Plutarch's accounts of her death. Plutarch, the famous Roman historian. So her death is reported on August 12, 30 BCE. And we learned that through his work that Cleopatra was 39 years old when she died. Pretty so, young. Yeah, we work backwards. Uh, so it's assumed that she was born in 670 to 69 BCE. We do know that Cleopatra is, has a direct descendant to Ptolemy the first, the Mas- the, fir- the first Macedonian king. But how pure is that? Like we said, we don't know. Um, the elites of Macedon considered themselves to be true Greeks or the Hellen- Hellenists. That's why we get the this period of time is called the Hellenistic Age. Helen of Troy could be born. Yeah, yeah, they could be this, like the Hellenistic Ages after Helen could after, be. Yeah. The Ptolemies included, including Cleopatra, belong to that age, which spans from when Alexander the Great conquered Egypt, founded Alexandria, to when Cleopatra died in 30 BCE. That period of time, from 336 BCE to 30 BCE, so it's almost 300 years, 
That's called the Hellenistic Age. Uh, during this period, we, it kind of evolved from classical Greek culture. So it's kind of like that merge of Greek and Egyptian history. It's important to note that Roman historians who chronicle Cleopatra's life, which we kind of use as the basis for these stories or what we know from Cleopatra, they, get, they paid little attention to her childhood. So we don't know really what happened to Cleopatra uh, growing, growing up. Did the Romans, and I don't know, this is just me, would they have embellished or downplayed certain things when they were recounting history or were they pretty? Of course, of course. So uh, like we're hearing Roman accounts of Cleo. But, but should that integrity, I'm not saying it's completely false, but, but should there be a question mark with some of the stuff they claim about her? Yeah, what we're going to see with this, because we're going to use Plutarch, we're going to use Dio for mostly for our writing, for what we like. Like Saba Singer? Dio. 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 I don't know. They're uh, Roman historian. Ronnie James Dio. Yeah, Ronnie James Dio. We're going to use that. We're going to use Plutarch. Um, and we're going to use Sabaton. <laughs> Their lyrics. <laughs> Their lyrics. <laughs> We're going to use them, but we're going to also take into account that they were written during the time of Roman expansion and Cleopatra, for the most part, would be considered an enemy to the she Romans. Was, yeah. so, so we're going to take that into consideration when we're talking. So we're going to give their accounts, but we're going to also put in claimers that they claimed. So we don't know for a fact. Yeah. So yeah, so like we said, it's also important... Oh, is to there no African text on Twitter? there there's there's some uh, sellers that's written in egypt like on monuments that we know from that we also used in this okay, episode cool, cool. so it's important to note like we said that we have limited knowledge of her infancy but we know that she was she had an upbringing in alexandria right we do know that as most ptolemaic princesses cleopatra was not only confided to her pal- palaces uh she used to go learn in the library of alexandria um, she used to stand alongside her brothers as equals. Um, they would participate in state affairs. We said that she, like, there was a lineage of uh, Cleopatras who reigned as queens. Most of them are ruthless. And we also learned that Cleopatra had skills in reading, writing, arithmetic, and comprehensive understanding of the laws, history, and Greek and Egyptian traditions. We need to also um, take into account that Cleopatra, who Cicero mentions, we're also going to be using Cicero, who met Cleopatra and also held a very negative opinion of her, but he confirms her interest in academia. Like, he can't deny that. He reports that um, she would always engage Mark Antony in discussions about education. Plutarch would also say that Cle- was impressed by Cleopatra's command of languages. She was the first uh, Macedonian queen to speak the Egyptian tongue. She knew the ancient... You know, what sucks about this, though, is that because we don't know much about her childhood, we don't know what... right Because they were... I mean, her parents were like bastard children and mm-hmm. all that stuff, right? And Which is kind of like lost and like it's kind of a shame that we don't know that much Because then it, this was probably either the bastard kids were really impressive parents. Mm. Like inheritance of that, or she really worked hard to she re- yeah to overcome her. You know, so Cleopatra apparently this is the language she knew. She knew Ethiopian, Hebrew, the language of the Arabs, the Syrians, the Medes, the Parthians, and the Egyptian. And she was the only one who could speak in, to Egyptians in their normal tongue. She didn't have need a translator. Cleopatra's father understood the crucial connection between Egypt's future and that of Rome. Egypt was a fertile land, but it was very ill-defended. Uh, but it was an attractive target for the Romans, which of course is a power-hungry military nation that's constant need of grain. So Egypt was able to supply the grain to Rome under the basis that, like, listen, defend us, we'll supply. Okay. It's interesting to see Egypt being resorted down to a city-state. Don't keep in mind when we read about when we did the Bronze Age. How that was kind of the death knell for Egypt, and then Egypt would be conquered by the... Yeah, but it's crazy to think there what was once that is now a city-state almost. Because of the sea peoples. 
her father would have struggles to convince his own people, the kingmakers of Alexandria, to accept the reality that Rome is the might of Rome's might. And he hoped preserving his kingdom is by increasing, like the only way he said to preserve the kingdom is to increase cooperation with Rome. Against the wishes of the Alexandrians, he, he, go, he goes to great lengths to demonstrate his willingness to cooperate. In 63 BCE, he bestows a golden crown upon the influential Roman general Pompus, or known as Pompey, Pompey. the Great. He would, dun, dun, dun. he would even send the multiverse. Can you stop, man? It's so played out, this multiverse. Okay, stuff. fine, fine. He even sends Egyptian soldiers to fight alongside Pompey's troops in Palestine. Furthermore, he also resorts to bribery to secure his position. He provides substantial amount of money to Roman senators for, from various political factions, and these bribes are borrowed from Roman moneylenders, which he hopes to repay by raising taxes, which again causes suffering to his people. By 60 BCE, Cleopatra's father seizes an opportunity with Pompey, Crassus, and Julius Caesar from what we call the first triumvir thing, like seizure. Uh, which is essentially them three, like an oligarch of them controlling Rome. He offers Pompey and Caesar an enormous amount of money, 6,000 silver talents, in exchange for recognition that he's Egypt's true king. This sum is equivalent of Egypt's annual, half of Egypt's annual revenue. So he's buying his He's position. buying his position. He succeeds in, in being confirmed as the friend and ally of the Roman people and cements his position through some legal agreement. So, but there's a problem. As he secures his power, his younger son faces a precarious situation. He's now controlling Cyprus, which becomes annexed by Marcus Cato or Cato the Younger. King Ptolemy, Cleopatra's brother, chooses to take his own life, then accept an honorable retirement by Cato the Younger. The Cato the Younger is like, listen, I'll give you, let you go to exile and just retire. He commits suicide. The people, uh, the people of Alexandria protest their kingdom's apparent indifference to the situation, like your son just got murdered, yeah. killed himself, and they kind of exile him. It's worth noting that this, why is this important? Because he takes Cleopatra with him, goes in exile. That's why she's so educated. That's why she's so educated. And, and it's important because this is the first time Cleopatra meets Julius Caesar when she's 12 years old. This is the first How ever. How old was he? Julius, he's, he, was, he was a Roman general by then. 20s? Maybe 30s. Yeah, but like nothing happens then, but this is the first time they meet each other. And while he was in exile, uh, one of his daughters, Bernice IV, takes advantage of the situation and proclaims herself to be queen of Egypt. History repeating itself. Because as we said in the beginning, Bernice uh, III took over before her. Yeah. Now adopting the name Cleopatra Bernice, uh, she needs to find herself a husband to solidify her reign, right? So she picks one of her younger brothers. Makes sense. Who are too, yeah, but then she kind of notices that they're still a bit too young to rule, so she looks for her cousin. Even more, more sense. sense. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, unfortunately, the marriage turns quickly, like quickly turns sour. Uh, Starbo recounts that Cleopatra Bernice couldn't bear her husband's coarseness and vulgarity. While the Alexandrians were also unimpressed by his crude personality and his poor hygiene. He wasn't royal. Yeah, he wasn't royal enough. They called him salt fish monger. <laughs> Within a week of their wedding, he meets a violent end by being strangled. We don't know who strangled him, but he just ends up being strangled. Sure. So she needs a replacement husband. So she marries a person named Archelaus, who's, who calls himself the son of Rome's greatest enemy. Mithardis the sixth of Pontus. That's, that's a mouthful. Yeah. And they end up ruling for two years with the support of the people of Alexandria. All this while Cleopatra and her father were in exile in Rome. Although the Alexandrians may be content, Rome were not. They did not like the fact that she exiled her father. The influential Pompey offers his support and to Ptolemy and recognizing him as a weak but loyal king indebted to Roman bankers. So it's going to be a benefit. However, 
Ptolemy cannot return to Alexandria without assistance, and Rome hesitates to help, help him out. So they seek guidance from the oracles while, fa- while failing to decide on Egypt's fate. Meanwhile, Cleopatra's sister, Cleopatra Bernice, realizes that she needs also Rome's approval to retain her crown. She dispatches a delegation of 100 people, led by a brilliant academic and philosopher Dion of Alexandria, to plead her case. Ptolemy finds this out and brutally murders them on their way Wow. to the thing yeah this they think that this act was kind of like pushed by roman bankers because um they want kind of an indebted king in egypt so swiftly swept under the rug the romans kind of ignore it he's clearly disgraced but he's not de- but he's undeterred he borrows even more money goes and hides in the temple of artemis pompey's exile continues until early 55 bce where he manages to bribe a, a guy called Elias. Gabinus, the governor of Syria, to provide military support. As, Pul- as Plutarch uh, delicately puts it, uh, Gabus had a certain dread of war, but he cannot resist the allure of 10,000 ta- talents that Ptolemy offered him. Later that same year, uh, Syria would send a mercenary army across the Sinai and enter the eastern delta of Egypt, a city of called Pelsium. Egyptian's easternmost city falls, and Cleopatra's second husband is killed in battle. Cleopatra Bernice, Bernice. Second, yeah, second husband is killed in battle. I think you should just keep their last name, name for yeah. confusion's sake. Yeah. Despite being a traitor, he receives an honorable uh, burial by one, one of the generals of that war called Marcus Antonius, also known as Mark Antony. I feel like when you say this, it zooms in and writes his name like yeah. the beginning of Suicide Squad. <laughs> <laughs> hey, who is he? Marcus Antonius. No, or else knows as Mark Anthony. Yeah, and like all his accomplishments. He was a cavalry officer at that time. Ptolemy returns to Egypt triumphantly, but only to find that Alexandria was suffering under brutal foreign occupation. Keep in mind that Bernice's husband was a foreign. Um, The salt and fish guy? No, he died. He died, but like it was already controlled by his people. Yeah. Um, He executes Bernice and her prominent supporters. He executes his own daughter. Wow. Yeah, their confiscated properties is soon used to repay the debt that he owed to a Roman banker okay, called Riberus, who becomes Egypt's financial minister. But the problem is when he becomes Egypt's financial minister, it causes havoc and wreaks like... Re- and is he already re- seemed like he was bad with his money. It is, it is. And this like Egypt civil servants are stripped of their positions. Uh, they're replaced by this Roman ruthless... Right? Yeah, under and he the, already owed a lot of money and kept borrowing. Exactly. That, yeah. Civil disturbances erupt in Alexandria, Fayum, and Heraclepolis. Okay, Heraclepolis. Yeah, Heraclepolis. 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 How's that? So several disturbances erupt in Alexandria, Fayum, and Heraclopis. Uh, as the farmers threaten to withhold their labor unless they receive protection from tax collectors. Damn. Yeah. Socialism. Eventually, the finance minister is ousted and he's returned to Rome. And he stands trial for his financial improperties, but, his, but of course is acquitted. Same old, same old. The rich always get acquitted. And the poor, you no. know. <laughs> Got me acting like two coasts. <laughs> <laughs> Claiming poverty, he agrees to hand over the collection of his outstanding debt to a person named Julius Caesar. Yeah, he, he hands his debt to Julius Caesar. Also, uh, Gabinus, the, the Syrian uh, ruler, is also faces trial in Rome for his financial irregularities, and is, but is less fortunate. He is sent to exile. But the problem is his army, which, which contains a lot of Germans and Gauls, remain in Egypt. 
you see like how Egypt's becoming somewhat of a melting yeah. pot. They stay in Egypt over time. They end up marrying local women and they father children there and they become more a part of Egypt's diverse society. You forget Egypt is a very multi-ethnic. Even it back when, it's always been multi-ethnic. Multi because you have Africa and the African nations surrounding it. The Mediterranean. And you have Mediterranean nations surrounding it. And then it. you have the soldiers that the Romans brought in. Yeah. You know, and when Purges lived there. So it's a very... It's the such Ottomans a, and yeah. whatnot as well, yeah. Egypt suffers from erratic Nile floods and burdensome taxation. He has limited resources. Uh, but he tries to secure his succession by naming his uh, by naming his surviving kids into a royal cult known as New Sibling Loving Gods. That's a weird name. Yeah. Could have come up with a better one. Mm. I wonder if it sounded better in their language. The, uh, Theoi, Nioi, Philadephoi. Yeah, that sounds <laughs> um, It's kind of a way of making his kids look semi-divine, you know yeah. what I mean? However, um, he, he's kind of faced with an unusual situation for Pharaoh. He's without a queen. And the role of Egyptian queens remain like are somewhat mysterious, but they provide a vital female element to the king in Egypt because as Egyptian priests believe that he needs a queen to perform Egyptian ritu- religious rituals um, and to keep chaos at bay. Uh, there's no evidence to suggest that he marries his daughter. Father-daughter incest is considered a bit unacceptable. Yeah, siblings is as far Sibling as, they is as far as they go. And stepmoms are okay. Yeah, but uh, father-daughter is kind of wrong. In the end, by the fifth, by 51 BCE, he dies of disease. Disease. And as he's planned, he, his throne passes on to his daughter, Cleopatra, who just turned 18 at that time. And her 10-year-old brother, Ptolemy. He would appoint the Romans as guardians of Egypt's new king and queen, entrusting them with the protection of the Ptolemaic dynasty. Fine, fine, let's, let's move on. Few Alexandrians born the passing of Ptolemy, yet Cleopatra chooses to demonstrate an unwavering loyalty to her deceased father by immediately adopting the name Philo- Philopter, which means father-loving. Okay. She later assumes uh, the title... And they never got married, right? No. She, she later assumes the title Thea, which means goddess, and Nia Isis, or Neo Isis, indicating her ongoing devotion to the cult of Neos Dionysus, Theos Philapter. Cleopatra also takes upon herself to complete many of her father's unfinished projects. I guess they really bonded because they were in exile together and yeah, everything, yeah. you know? So this is where we go to part three, Cleopatra's reign. The precise date, like we said, is unknown, but it's likely to have occurred on February or March. We kind of see a script that goes, Ptolemy's year 30 becomes year one. And this marks the beginning of the new regime. Although it's not recorded, Cleopatra is thought to likely have married her brother. The 10-year-old, when yeah. she was 18. Uh, soon after the father's death, because that's the symbol, right? That this, it has to be a symbolic union. We don't know if they consummated. We know it's a symbolic union. Which is continu- continuing the Macedonian. Yeah. But because due to the age difference between Cleopatra, like we said, who was 18 and her brother at the time, we just think it's like, okay, she married him because that's what they have to do. During the first year and a half of her joint reign, Cleopatra effectively becomes the ruling authority, while her brother becomes, a, as a minor, plays a secondary role governed by a regency council. So he has his own council that run shit for him. Okay. Uh, documents from this period suggest that Cleopatra's rules alone. Caution must be exercised while interpreting these documents because it was during Cleopatra's reign. So she might have been over blemished. Yeah, her. so she kind of might have been... Um, Hyped herself up a bit. And also, like we said, so it was during this, uh, Rome was facing its own distractions because Julia, the wife of Pompey and the daughter of Julius, Julius Caesar, Caesar, dies in 54 BCE. Mm. This personal link between the two most powerful men is severed. And the following year, Crassus dies, so it leaves them two only 
reigning. On January 49 BCE, which is the day that I would live in infamy, <laughs> that day I lived in infamy. In January 48 BCE, a day that I would live in infamy, Julius Caesar crosses the Rubicon, uh, the official boundary between Italy and Gaul, in which Rome gave a decree to Caesar. If you pass this, you're declaring war on Rome because he was marching back to take over Rome. By leading his army across the river, Caesar officially commits treason and effectively declares war on Pompey and Rome. Shortly after, Pom Pompey's son, Gainius Pompey, arrives to Alexandria and seeks military aid on his father's behalf. Cleopatra and Ptolemy cannot deny the request of Pompey because they owe him money from exactly. her Exactly. So they supply him. About 500 uh, Gambians, Gabinians go and 60 warships will go to uh, Pompey's campaign. However, Cleopatra's apparent eagerness to please the Romans draws criticism from the people of Alexandria, who begin to see that she's, she's beginning to copy her father. So Cleopatra begins to grow unpopular within Alexandria, and this kind of promotes her brother's advisors to act against her. Her brother's regency council was like, okay, this is our chance to take over. In 49 BCE, a new... So he was already intending to yeah. turn his back on her. Uh, we find this, uh, a seal that says year one, which is also year three which equates the third year of their joint reign, but also signifies Ptolemy's first year as sole king of Egypt. In the summer of 49 BCE, Cleopatra's name vanishes from official documents. She's forced to flee Alexandria. Cleopatra and her supporters likely travel south to Thebes, a city prone to rebellion but, poten but potentially sympathetic to Cleopatra. From there, she heads east to Syria, uh, where she embarks on raising a mercenary army with a remarkable speed. And despite, despite the Roman civil civil war happening in the Mediterranean, she was able to find the, her own mercenary army. Her own arm. crew within the chaos. Yeah. Uh, this shows her that she's, that she's a viable contender of the throne and that people were willing to support her, at least outside of Alexandria. It's also believed that most of her troops hail from a city called Ashkelon, which is a Philistine coastal city known for its loyalty to the Ptolemies and where coins bearing Cleopatra's images were issued. On August 9th, the armies of Pompey and Caesar engage in a decisive battle in Greece. Despite Pompey's numerical advantage, Caesar ends up winning and becomes victorious. And he shows mercy to Pompey. He lets him, he pardons them. Oh, wow. Yeah, Pompey flees with his remaining forces to the islands of Lesbos for refuge. Yeah, did he chill with, uh, what's the name there? <laughs> Sappho. What's his name? Oh, Odysseus. Odysseus. Yeah. Wasn't he in Lesbos as well? Yeah. Allegedly. On September 28th, Pompey ends up seeking refuge from King Ptolemy. He hopes to get his support and to grant him a safe passage to Egypt. However, the three, region, the three regions representing Ptolemy, the region's council, because it still, still hasn't been of age yet, they kind of don't know how to handle Pompey's arrival. So there's a debate among them. Because the situation is difficult because he's a loser. He's like the losing side. So you don't want to really upset Caesar who's coming out as Victoria. But then again, you don't want to turn away Pompey who's helped you out throughout the years. This is Lesbos, right? No, this is after Lesbos. He goes to Egypt. He wants uh, to go Egypt, to Egypt. Egypt. So he sends note to Egypt. Like, like I want to come, come over. Okay, cool, cool. So the situation presents a difficult decision for the region council. Casting off Pompey will undoubtedly make him an enemy. And this was uh, Cleo's, Cleo's, Cleo's brother. brother. Yeah. The people who are ruling on at behalf the, of At the moment, yeah. yeah. While receiving him will anger Caesar. So who's pursuing him? Because Caesar's still looking for Pompey, right? Didn't he let him go? Pardoned his defeated enemies. But when but Pompey runs away and Caesar's like, okay, but like... So the Romans have this thing where you kind of have to lead the triumphant when you win. So you take the prisoners, you walk them down the Rome, and then you let them go. Like shame. Shame, yeah. Pompey ran away. Caesar needed him to come back to, like, to legitimize his uh, rule. 
So uh, Theodos, who is one of the most well-known regent council, presents an inf- like a famous argument that they could never befriend nor offend Pompey. Okay, that's his argument. We can't do that. He concludes with a mar- with a memorable phrase, "Dead men don't bite." Deep. which he delivers apparently with a smile according to Plutarch we don't know if that's true or not uh, with the calculated strategy he dispatches a messenger to welcome Pompey as Pompey goes into comes into shore right so before Pompey was able to set foot on the shores of Egypt he is met with a lifeboat that takes him into the shallow waters that's where he's brutally murdered the act is carried out in full view of Ptolemy's army and the young king who's sitting on the beach watching him arrive so Egypt decided to kill as kill. a way to win over Julius Caesar yeah they're like listen if we get rid of Pompey we yeah. won't have to deal with him as an enemy and we could gift his body to Caesar because um, dead men don't bite dead men don't bite mm-hmm. sounds like a hardcore band's album <laughs> dead men don't bite like bury your dead yeah Pompey is stabbed to death and his head is severed from his body. Three days later, Julius Caesar arrives in Alexandria and while venturing ashore ahead of his troops in pursuit of his rival, he is presented with the severed head of Pompey, which has been preserved for three days for Caesar. Overwhelmed by the gruesome sight, apparently Caesar turns away in horror and bursts into tears. He didn't want to kill him, I think. He didn't want to kill him. He just wanted like to make an example out of him. Yes, yeah, so he cries when he sees his severed head. But the Alexandrians were deeply resentful of this Roman interference, and they were burdened by the, this unpopular king who they did not want, kind of want anymore. And they, and the fact that they wanted, like he greeted Caesar, was kind of like oh, another Roman coming into Egypt. Uh, so they started to riot. Uh, Caesar ends up securing himself in a pavilion within Ptolemy's palace and finding safety from the ongoing skirmishes in the street. So this kind of leaves Cleopatra in a position where she needs to go back to the palace to talk to Caesar, which will lead to the famous, or one of the most infamous and, I guess, fiction, I don't know, I don't want to say fictionalized, but like overhyped meeting. If you know, if you know, you know. For Cleopatra and Caesar. Uh, there's undoubtedly careful planning involved with Cleopatra's return to the palace. Plutarch informs us that she and her confidants pondered over how they could enter the palace undetected to meet Caesar, because don't forget, she's still in exile. And it seemed likely that they had conducted a dress rehearsal one a few times before going out to meet him. So how did they go? The journey from Cleopatra's camp to Alexandria presented numerous obstacles. There was the marshland that lies between the two locations that was filled with mites and mosquitoes. It was a natural barrier against invasions from the east. Ptolemy's forces controlled the coast of Egypt, uh, while Pompey's decaying body lays in a makeshift grave on the coast. They buried him there. The direct route along the exposed Mediterranean shoreline with a strong opposing current would expose Cleopatra to both danger and to detection. So they needed to find a detour. They'd go up the Nile to Memphis, followed by a sail back to the coast on a voyage that would take at least eight days, right? So she goes on this like eight-day journey in the middle of October. She sails along the Nile. As dusk settles over Alexandria, uh, her confidant, Apollodorus, skillfully maneuvers a small two-oared boat into the city's eastern harbor, expertly avoiding detection. The shore is shrouded by mystery, while the city's low-lying coast is illuminated by the magnificent Pharaoh's lighthouse, the lighthouse of Alexandria. Uh, Cleopatra remains concealed within an oversized sack of made of hemp she's rolled up in a rug. 
arranged by weight lengthwise inside it, which is securely fastened with a leather cord accompanied by the gentle lapping of the waves. Apollodorus proceeds across the palace grounds, which is an expansive complex of gardens, multicolored villas and walkways spanning nearly a mile or the quarter of a city. It's a familiar territory for Apollodorus, who has likely orchestrated this triumphant return. Passing through the palace gates, Cleopatra makes her way directly into Caesar's quarter. This is the famous moment. Cleopatra's like, many queens have risen from obscurity, but Cleopatra's re-entry in the world stage is truly unparalleled. The sack was rolled open and Cleopatra rolled in front of Caesar. It's a famous scene that Elizabeth Taylor would do. Wow. Yeah, and it's like, and that's when like they say that Caesar fell in love with Cleopatra. It's a famous scene that I'm pretty sure you know that scene where, she, where Elizabeth Taylor is rolled out in front of. That's what I do to win people over. Yeah. I roll out of a carpet. The precise details of Cleopatra's unveiling before Caesar remains kind of elusive. We don't know much about it. Regardless, it's improbable. Was, that she, sorry, was this the first time you saw her since she was 12? Yeah. And it's kind of very improbable that she would look very majestic being rolled out of a carpet that took eight days to get to, get to him. In contrast to the male imagination and the artistic representation, Cleopatra would likely be attired in something of a tunic, you know? Something a bit royal, but something a bit also comfortable. You know, like a Greek tunic. Mm-hmm. But the, the audacity of Cleopatra's surprise entrance into Caesar's quarter, defying all expectations and overcoming formidable obstacles, holds, a great, holds great political significance. It represents a collision of two civilizations poised on divergent paths, unexpectedly intersecting at a momentous encounter. Now, this meeting, the shockwaves of this homecoming, like, will change the projection of history or will go down in history as one of the most important meetings of two people. Despite their age difference, they shared a lot of similarities. Both were had ruthless ambition. Both wanted to rule, be sole rulers of their country. Uh, they recognized the importance of preventing Egypt from descending into a civil war. They possessed a unique ability to win adoration of the common people. Keep in mind, Caesar was loved by the people, right? So was Cleopatra. They both had charismatic exteriors, and they, but they also carried a degree of loneliness and insecurity. Caesar had endured the loss of his only daughter, Julia. Cleopatra, on the other hand, had been estranged from her younger siblings, and her father, the only person who was close to her, passed away to mm-hmm. at a young age. Um, on that fateful night... Ptolemy the 13th, her did brother. Did they hook up? They say they did, but I don't know, like, there's nothing... Um, so we know that she rolled out and she and felt lonely. But we don't know if they hook up or not. Let your imagination go. Hmm. Like, where would she have spent the night? <laughs> and back in the carpet she came out of. <laughs> on, on that fateful night, Ptolemy the 13th retires to bed on, with the assurance that his sister will be unable to plead her case before Caesar. With the support of the Gamis and the people of Alexandria, he believes that it's only a matter of time before he, as a recognized friend and ally of the Roman people, will be confer- confirmed as the sole ruler of Egypt. He was 100% convinced he had this in the bag. One thing he was missing. Rolling out of a carpet. The next morning, he wakes up to the shocking news that his sister has somehow made her way into the palace and that Cleopatra had already established an intimate relationship with Caesar and managed to persuade him to support her cause. Damn. The 13-year-old Ptolemy finds... It, yeah, he's 13, by the way, when all this... <laughs> Poor kid. <laughs> I call this by 13. Poor kid. By 13, we were listening to corn and being angsty. Yeah. Um, <laughs> the 13-year-old Ptolemy finds this turn of events overwhelming, and in a fit of rage, he puts on corn, 
Mm, and goes to his room. room and tears out tears off his didium and incites the crowd to storm the palace in no but he, what actually happens he goes to the crowd and he orchestrates his anger and he tells them to storm the palace for cleopatra like he's trying to beg the crowd to mob her mm-hmm. uh, and to mob caesar but caesar remains unfazed by this uproar in a formal assembly he reads aloud ptolemy's will uh, clearly stating his expecta- his expectation for their elder sibling Cleopatra and Ptolemy to rule Egypt together. To everyone's surprise, the younger sibling, uh, his younger siblings, because he has also two younger siblings, Arsenio and Ptolemy the Fourteenth. Arsenio Hall. Yeah, Arsenio Hall and Ptolemy the Fourteenth are designated to uh, as future kings and queens of Cyprus. They're sent to Cyprus, a territory that Caesar returns to Egypt. He conquers it and he gives it back to Egypt. Because don't forget. It's, it was taken over when uh, one of her siblings mm-hmm. also commi- killed himself. The Alexandrian wars are characterized by four months of brutal battles of land and sea. It plunges, and there's a lot of guerrilla warfare uh, within Alexandria. Despite the city's famous uh, fire restraint constructions, Caesar's actions kind of caused damage to what would be fir- like one of the most famous casualties of this Alex- Alexandrian civil war. Uh, the Library of Alexandria burns. Mm-hmm. Caesar burns a fleet in the harbor and the fire catches into the library. Uh, eventually, Caesar ends up gaining control of the lighthouse, the pharos, and the harbor. Uh, but the situation remains tense. The resourceful Alexandrians build a new fleet and make a daring attempt to drown Caesar in the Mediterranean. Caesar could have been drowned by then. But he persists, holding his military plans above water despite losing his cloak. Uh, throughout the conflict, Cleopatra has remained silent and seemingly inactive. So it's pretty much a war between Caesar and her brother. There's a famous story that she wept for days when the library... library, library. I heard that too, yeah. Yeah. Uh, While her younger sister escapes from the palace, she aligns herself with Ptolemy's generals, who who wins support from the Alexandrians. So it's kind of like a complicated mess of people just joining... Some people like her, some people don't. Caesar did. Um, Ptolemy's general proclaims her as Egypt's queen, and she says that she should be the Egyptian queen, not Whoa. Cleopatra. But he ends up, the general who kind of proclaims her queen ends up being executed and murdered by an ambitious general called, I'm not going to be able to pronounce this, Ganymede, Ganymede, G-A-N, Gan, Y-M-E-D-E. Why what? M-E-D-E. So he ends up getting killed by Ganymede, who's like an ambitious, one of the members of the Ptolemy's court. But Ptolemy becomes isolated and Ganymede takes over the army to fight Caesar. Surprisingly, the Alexandrians disillusioned by this whole like bizarre civil war uh, send ambassadors to Caesar, the Alexandrian elites, with a peculiar request. They seek permission to dismiss the king and to allow him to rejoin his subjects, like make him one of the people. Caesar, despite his skepticism, agrees to release Ptolemy Thirteenth into the crowd, the population hoping it would lead to a peaceful resolution. However, Ptolemy resumes his host- hostilities as soon as he's uh, free- given his freedom. Uh, 14 by then or something. Yeah. Caesar's friends were able to capture the cities around Alexandria and they finally marched into Alexandria. Caesar surprises the Egyptians with an attack from the rear, resulting, in a, resulting in a brief and fierce battle. Uh, Alexandria eventually surrenders to Caesar. Arsenio is captured. Ptolemy XIII is tragically drowned within the chaos, but no one knows who drowned him. Uh, apparently, it seemed that he tried to escape and fell off an overcrowded boat and fell into the water. They, the recovery of his, whole, of his golden armor proves that he died. They found his golden armor. 
The Egyptian army surrenders in the Janu- January 47 BCE. And despite being the unpopular victor, Caesar triumphantly returns to Alexandria with Cleopatra and her younger and her other younger brother, Ptolemy XIV. Uh, Caesar also decides not to annex Egypt and instead reinstates Cleopatra to her throne, which he has a symbolic union with her younger brother, uh, who becomes her nominal husband. Nice. However, Cleopatra is the one who's reigning. Her husband's just there for, for, sure. for shits and giggles. And she's backed by Caesar's favor, which grants her significant influence. Pretty much her and Caesar just rule together. Their joint rule is supported by three... The ultimate power couple. Yeah, they're, they're supported by four Roman legions as well, effectively making Egypt a Roman state. Although Caesar is now free to return to Rome, he delays his departure from Alexandria, and he decides to stay uh, He starts a while longer in Alex. A romance. Mm. While contemporary accounts do not mention the reason for his delay, modern historians widely believe that it was because of his relationship with Cleopatra. Some argue that Caesar wants to ensure that Cleopatra was secure in her position. Makes sense, too. Um, yeah, so he stayed there. During this period, we know that Caesar and Cleopatra have spent many nights feasting on, together. They would sail in, on her luxurious state barge uh, all the way to Ethiopia and back. Sailing on the Nile holds a group, like it's a, it's very symbolic for them to both do that together. It allows the Pharaoh to confirm their presence and reinforce their rule among the people. So by her going up and down the cities of the Nile, she's like showing herself to the people, right? According to some accounts, Cleopatra was also preparing for a grand procession down the Nile with Caesar by her side. But it wasn't like a romantic cruise. It was more of a political move to demonstrate their alliance, like if they're too thrown together. Caesar's motivations for this journey, though, have been noted to be beyond politics. He had also been fascinated by the Nile. He always wanted to see the source of the Nile. I've got a big report due on the Nile River. Topic, sentence, bibliography, page numbers. It's nuts. And he desired to uh, unravel its mysteries. So he did a bride's head revisited. Yeah. Ultimately, the true extent of the journey remains uncertain. Between 47 and 44 BCE, Cleopatra gives, us, gives birth to a son whom she names as Ptolemy Caesar, implying his connection to supposedly his father. Mm. Uh, the people of Alexandria quickly renamed the baby as Caesarian or Little Caesar, uh, assuming that his Caesar's child, right? However, contemporary historians uh, kind of debate on who is the actual father, who's Caesarian's father. But Cleopatra kind of remains silent regarding the rumor about her son's paternity. She benefits from the assumption that he's Caesar's child. Caesarian provides a f- strong incentive for Caesar to ensure the independence of Egypt because it will be his son's inheritance. Caesarian will be next in line to inherit. Yeah. If Ptolemy XIV dies, Caesarian will become king of Egypt, ruling alongside his mother. This agreement would secure Rome's protection for Rome and provide Caesar's family with considerable power. However, Caesar was already married to a Roman wife, and in Rome, there is no such thing as polygamy. Mm-hmm. In summer 47 BCE, Caesar leaves Cleopatra in Egypt to resume his military campaign against Pompey. Uh, during his absence, Cleopatra solidifies her hold on the throne by, hold, by through her manipulation of the cult of Isis. Now that she has, she gives birth to her son, there's kind of like this idea of Isis and Horus. So she kind of fashions herself to be like as if she's Isis and her son, son is Horus. Kind of solidifying this weird marriage of divinity in, in the, the mythology. Yeah. yeah, Caesar he wins in Asia Minor. He suppresses a mutiny in Rome and campaigns successfully in North Africa against Pompey's supporters. He returns to Rome in July 46 CE, where he celebrates four triumphs, uh, showcasing his victories in Gaul, Egypt, Pontus, and Africa. During this time, Cleopatra, along with Ptolemy the Fourteenth and most likely Caesarian, 
traveled to Rome Uh-oh. and settled in Caesar, one of Caesar's private estates ac- across the Tiber River. They remained there even during Caesar's extend- extended absence in Spain in December 46 BCE to the summer of 45 BCE. And of course, the presence in Rome hands, it plays into the hands of Caesar's enemies who spread rumors about his intention to divorce his wife Copernia uh, and marry Cleopatra. So, and that he was planning to move the capital of Rome to Alexandria. Oh, wow, yeah. Uh, it is said that Caesar also dedicated a statue, a golden statue to Cleopatra in the form of Temple of Venus. Uh, Cleopatra also re- fuels resentment within certain factions. Cicero, a dedicated Republican, expresses his disdain at Cleopatra's arrogance and dislikes her intensely. Unpopularity towards Cleopatra stems from her association with the Greece and the perception that she's leading Caesar astray. She's a, being a simp. She's being a Yoko, you know? She's being a simp. Yeah. yeah. They blame Cleopatra for Caesar's flirtation with royalty. They blame him for Caesar's weird obsession with divinity. And they blame that Caesar is becoming dictatorial more because of Cleopatra. Caesar returns to Italy in the summer of 45 BCE. On September 13, he writes a will in his estate where he stipulates a provision for a guardian for any future sons that he has. And he designates Gaius Octavius or Octavian, who would later become Augustus, as the primary heir. Cleopatra leaves Rome within a month of Caesar's assassination, as mentioned in a letter written by Cicero. Cleopatra and her entourage return to Alexandria, where, uh, where Papyrus, dated to July 26, 44 BCE, confirms the presence of Paul- Ptolemy Fourteenth, her other younger brother. Uh, however, Ptolemy dies before the end of August. With no other heir, three-year-old Caesarian becomes Ptolemy Fifteenth, known as Theos Philapter. He's three years old? He's three years old by then. Caesarian. Her, his... Uh, Cleo's son. Okay, yeah, yeah. The one who Caesar wanted autonomy with his law that he did. Yeah, yeah. Uh, well, it's never really like it's never really written if Caesar does acknowledge uh, him as his own son. It's kind of just assumed that it was his son. And Mori wasn't alive around that time. Hmm? Yeah, Mori wasn't alive. Mori Bavich. So Caesarian becomes Ptolemy the four, the fifteenth, sorry. Or known as Theos Philapter Philometer, the father loving, mother loving God. To mention again that like Caesarian's birth is very important to Cleopatra because you know in ancient Egypt the mother plays an important figure. Um, there's a there's a connection between Isis and Horus. So and pharaohs are semi-divine. So when you make a connection to Isis and Horus, you're making connection to the gods. Top tier gods, you know yeah. what I mean? Cleopatra finds herself in a position of authority. She's now kind of considered a semi-divine mother. So during this time, like Egypt had like a three challenging years, but for most parts, it was peaceful. It was challenging in the sense where it's like economically, it suffered from drought, the Nile wasn't flooding, had irregular floods. Historian Seneca recounts that during her 10th and 11th year of rule, which corresponds to 42nd, 41 BCE, mm-hmm. the Nile does not flood as it traditionally does. This lack of flooding leads to a series of problems. It's you so have- essential for the crops, yeah. So you have failed crops. Failed crops leads to rapid inflation, uh, which would eventually also lead to hunger, plague, and civil unrest. Cleopatra, it is mentioned she tried to do some relief efforts. Despite the economic challenges, Cleopatra's position of power becomes more secure than ever before. With her brothers dead and her sisters in exile, if you remember, and their, all their support is removed, Cleopatra stands as the sole ruler of Egypt. There's no, no rivals to rally against her. Her co-ruler is her son, Caesarian, uh, or known as Ptolemy Caesar Theos Philapter Philometer, as we mentioned, who is declared king of Egypt in Alexandria during the summer of 44 BC. So she calls him the king of Egypt and she would rule as the king's and he was mother. Like six at the time, right? And she would rule as the king... Um, yeah, the mother, yeah. The mother, uh, the king an- mother. The Angelina Jolie to the Colin Farrell. 
<laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, while Cleopatra's uh, rule in Egypt experiences a degree of relative peace, the wider Mediterranean world is far from calm. Uh, the second triumvir thing, like Caesar, consists of Caesar's friend. What's triumvirate? The co-rulers. So there's, um, you know, because like Rome was an oligarch, right? So it's yeah. like there's a co-ruler department, right? So the second co-rulers consisted of Caesar's best friend, Mark Antony, and his great nephew, Octavian, and this guy called Mark Emilius Rep- Lepitus. So this group is formed with the goal of capturing Caesar's assassins, right? which included Brutus and Cassius, which if you've read Shakespeare, Egypt being the richest land in the Eastern Mediterranean, despite its challenges and despite the Nile not flooding, was expected to provide practical assistance in this pursuit. On the other hand, Brutus and Cassius, realizing their lack of support in Rome, also seeked help from the Eastern provinces of the Mediterranean, and they also looked for Egypt to help them in financing the civil war. So now it's their turn to ask for help from Egypt. Exactly. And amid this political turmoil, Cleopatra finds herself forced to take sides. She eventually commits uh, herself by returning the four uh, Roman legions stationed in Egypt by Caesar to Cornelius Dolabella, who's a general in Syria at the time. And he is also serving under Caesar and Mark, uh, sorry, Caesar, Mark Anthony and Octavian. Uh, as a result, it becomes clear who she's siding with. As a, and as a result of that, they acknowledge her son as the co-ruler of Egypt. Nice. Uh, this decision aims to secure Cleopatra's continued support for Octavian as Caesar's legal heir, as she is the mother of his natural son, you know? Yeah. Uh, Cassius manages to intercept and sway Cleopatra's Roman troops who change sides without resistance and join his legions. Cassius then directly appeals to Cleopatra for aid, which raises uh, concerns for an intimate invasion. In response, Cleopatra pleads that her country is suffering through famine, plague, and manpower sh- shortage, claiming her inability to participate directly in the war. So she just gave like a support, but not a... Yeah, she's like, listen, I can't send you soldiers. I don't have the capability. Additionally, Serpion, the governor of Cyprus, declares his support to Cassius and supplies him with ship. Don't keep in mind that uh, Cyprus is kind of in the middle ground where it goes to Egypt, yeah. declares independence. Was goes Cyprus to- run by her siblings? It was, yeah. And there, there's also there's an indication of a plot to dispose Cleopatra and replace her with her sister, who resides in the temple of Artemis in Cyprus. So there's also plans that Serpion wanted to dispose Cleopatra and put her sister in her place. However, the threat of invasion lifts when Brutus summons Cassius and his troops uh, in 42 BCE. Cleopatra, now openly siding with Mark Anthony and Octavian, raises a fleet and sets sail to join the Octavian and uh, Anthony's army in Greece. Unfortunately, her journey is hindered by a mighty Mediterranean storm which damages her ships and leaves Cleopatra herself ill, possibly with seasickness. So her fleet uh, limps back to Alexandria as the wreckage washes up on Greek shores. Some speculate that she actually deliberately destroyed her own fleet. To show that she couldn't support? Yeah. Like, like I yeah. tried, but it didn't work out. Like, it's kind of like a false gesture. Like, oh, I brought my fleet, but the storm fought. Like, a false flag, exactly. one would say. Yeah, in a weird way, yeah. But as soon as she's like, ready, but as soon as Cleopatra awaits the readiness of her second fleet, news arrives that Brutus and Cassius have committed suicide following the defeat at the battles of Philippe in Macedon on October, 20, uh, October 42nd BCE. This turn of events leave Octavian and Antony as the dominant figures in Rome. Octavian controls the majority of the Rome's Western Empire, while Mark Antony was entrusted to hold authority over Gaul and most of the eastern provinces. The third person, Lepidus, was eventually gained control of Africa, but he's considered like a a non-entity. It's it's mostly Mark Anthony and Octavian, who we said would be later called as Augustus Caesar. While Octavian is dealing with illness and there's rumors of his death in Rome, Mark Anthony takes control over his eastern territories. 
Cleopatra and her son end up seeking a, p- a powerful protector in Egypt, and Mark Anthony, as the ruler of the East and a popular like member of the ruling council, becomes their natural ally. Mark Anthony also faces financial challenges due to promises he can't afford to fulfill. He owed his sh- soldiers money during the civil war that he was a- unable to pay back. Mark and- Mark Anthony. At that time, he's situated in Greece. He he starts embracing the cult of Dionysus and starts indulging himself in extra, extravagant festivities. This is important for it later. So while stationed in Tartus, Mark Anthony summons Cleopatra to answer for charges of aiding a traitor, presenting herself with a challenge to prove her innocence. Did she roll out of a carpet? No, no, this time. <laughs> Cleopatra, well aware of Mark Anthony's character, devises a plan to impress him by portraying herself as Isis, the consort of Dionysus slash Osiris. Cleopatra then embarks on a spectacular journey along this, I think, I don't know how if the sea is pronounced, Sidness River, Kidness River, arriving as uh, aboard a gilded ship adorned with silver oars and magnificent purple silk sail. On deck, flutes, pipes, lutes play enchanting melodies while the air is filled with the scent of powerful incense. Uh, Cleopatra, dressed in the robes of Isis and climbing beneath a gold-spangled canopy, is attended by beautiful small boys dressed as Cupid. This is all just to go meet Mark Anthony. The people of Tarsus flock to the harbor to witness this breathtaking arrival, leaving Mark Anthony alone and bewildered in the marketplace at that period. Mark Anthony, captivated by Cleopatra's presence, sends an invitation to dine that night. Damn. However, she declines, insisting yeah. that he dines as, at her boat as a guest. Cleopatra holds, hosts a banquet of such splendor that even the usual verbose of Plutarch refrains from attempting to describe it. That evening, they sit together on the deck of her boat, surrounded by a multitude of twinkling artificial lights. Plutarch makes it clear that Cleopatra had deliberately set out to seduce Mark Antony, who, unlike Caesar, succumbed almost immediately to the practice. She got res, huh? Yeah. High res. Cleopatra's confidence lays in her allure, as well as in her charms and, sor- and sorcery she possessed. While some portray Mark Anthony as a simple and naive man, easily corrupted by power and luxury, it's essential to recognize that he was as also as ambitious and capable individual, right? During their time together, banquets played a significant role in Cleopatra's seduction tactics. She knew like he loved festivities. Uh, she uses the slavish feast to captivate her lovers. This included Caesar as well. Also like the ambitious lifestyle. Uh, with Mark Anthony, who's notoriously weak and lazy, Cleopatra's feeding and indulgence takes center stage. The sheer amount of food consumed and wasted at their court is enough to astonish even the most restrained individuals. Plutarch, that's what Plutarch said. So much said. for economic turmoil, huh? Yeah. Uh, legends and story abound regarding like, uh, Cleopatra's extravagance. One tale recounts that Pelony the Elder tells of Cleopatra wagering that she could give Mark Anthony a banquet worth 10 million sesteries. As dessert, she drops a pearl into a cup of sour wine, allowing it to dissolve. And then she tells him to consume it. And she's like, this is the most expensive banquet you'll ever have. Cleopatra returns to Egypt after this, and Mark Anthony follows her a month later. He intends to spend the winter 40, 41 to 40 BC in Alexandria. She must have been good company. Because a lot of people want to stay there for a yeah. while. Yeah. Well, to be honest, Alex in winter... Yeah, and Egypt is a nice place. It's like a vacation spot. Yeah, exactly. And it is the number one city in the world. Like, this is where all the academics are, right? Mm. Uh, relaxing and contemplating ways to generate revenue from Egypt, uh, much like Caesar had done before him. Unlike Caesar, who was forcefully imposed himself on Alexandria, Mark Antony appears as a private individual. He, dis- he abandons his Roman toga and he wears like Greek clothing. According to classical authors, Cleopatra and Mark Antony enjoy a carefree winter together. They engage in playful and almost childish activities. They formed a drinking society called the Inmitable Livers, uh, which meet every night to drink, feast, play dice, hunt, and engage in their favorite pastimes. 
which is wandering the streets of Alexandria in disguise and playing pranks on citizens. That's funny. So that's what Mark Anthony and Cleo did. Hmm. Plutarch suggests that Cleopatra uses this society as an excuse to spend every moment with Mark Anthony, uh, unwilling to let him out of her sight. Or she was controlling him. Mm. Another interpretation is that, that the group was a Dionistic initiation. It's a di- like the cult of Dionysus, which is the god of wine, right? Gather regularly to perform sacred religious rites that involve consumption of alcohol. Stories are a band of Cleopatra's sense of humor, and often that she would make pull jokes on Mark Anthony. One such story tells that Mark Anthony tried to go fishing, but he fails, right? Which frustrates him in front of Cleopatra. So to salvage his pride, Mark Anthony orders his fishermen to secretly catch fish before and to place them in hooks. So when he goes fishing, it's like as if he caught them, right? So however, Cleopatra sees it through this. And the following day, she invites her friends to witness Mark Anthony's fishing. This time, she has one of her attendants swim ahead and attach salted fish into Mark Anthony's end. To show that they were caught before. So it's like, this is the type of life they had, right? In the year 40 BCE, Cleopatra gives birth to Alexander and Cleopatra. She gives birth to twins. Are they Mark Anthony's? Yeah. Meanwhile, Mark Anthony had then departed Alexandria and makes no effort to see Cleopatra or his Egyptian children for the next three and a half years. Weird. Weird, yeah. It appears that Anthony considers his time with Cleopatra as like a brief holiday away from his ordinary life rather than a deeply committed love affair. Cleopatra, who uses Anthony to fulfill her duties of producing more children, may share a similar perspective. In March of that year, the Parthians launch an attack on Rome territories in Syria and Asia Minor. So Mark Anthony is hurried to leave Alexandria for terror to fight them off. Many Roman uh, Roman client kings have defected to Parthians and they were beginning to take over. One of the famous ones was Herod of Judah, a famous biblical yeah. king. Uh, he joined the Parthi- Parthians against the Romans. Rome. Anthony is unable or unwilling to intervene at that time, and the situation worsens. Meanwhile, Mark Anthony's new rival, Octavian, skillfully undermines Mark Anthony's yeah, he support. Came back from his illness? Yeah, yeah. Undermines Mark Anthony's support, and Lucius Antonius, Mark Anthony's brother, and Flava, and Flava. Flava, Flava? Yeah, boy! Fulvia. Sorry. Flavor Flav. Flavor Flav declare war on Octavian. But since Mark Anthony wasn't there to declare war, it doesn't really count, you know what I mean? But during that time, his his wife, Fulvia, dies soon after, leaving Mark Anthony free to marry Cleopatra. Still, considering the sensitive political climate, marriage to a foreign queen was not a wise choice for Rome, especially that his ambition now was beyond being a Roman general. Yeah. On October the 40, there was a treaty signed called the Treaty of Brindisium which uh, acquires Mark Anthony to prove his loyalty to Octavian by relinquishing his control over Gaul and marrying Octavius' recently widowed half-sister, Octavia. <laughs> Creative. Creative. Uh, this is my sister, Octavian. It's Octavian yeah. in a wing. Yeah, with a wing, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Anthony complies, and the wedding takes place shortly after the birth of the Egyptian twins. So this is what's happening in the three and a half years. Oh, wow. Anthony and Octavius settle in Athens, where Mark Anthony is hailed as the new Dionysus. The consort of the goddess Athena, Octavia, the dutiful Roman wife, plays the part. You know what I mean? In the spring of 37 BCE, so three years after, a pivotal meeting takes place between Mark Anthony, Octavia, and Octavian. Yeah, this, this, uh, their objective to renew their council for another five years and to, uh, Mark Anthony to pledge to provide Octavian with two squadrons consisting of 120 warships. Keep in mind, by the way, um, back then, if you were a general, you had your own legion 
like you did not have one general who controlled the whole army. Like right. technically, each general had their own sub. Had you, yeah, you had your own people who were loyal to you, and yeah. that's why Caesar was able to get his people to go yeah, march yeah. back into their Rome. Own crew, yeah, yeah, and that's why you find like in situations like this, I want you to pledge an allegiance to me that in times of war you'd give me your legions. Or Caesar's legions would join Mark Anthony's legions, you know what I mean? And Octavian agrees to give Mark Anthony four legions consisting of 20,000 soldiers for his campaign against the Parthians in, in Syria. As a symbolic gesture, Mark Anthony's son from his previous marriage, a young Marcus Antinius, is betrothed to Octavian's two-year-old daughter. With the agreement in place, Mark Anthony and Octavia embark on a journey to Kofu with their spirits high and hopes for a fruitful alliance. However, Mark Anthony's optimism soon wanes and he realized that Octavian has not fulfilled his promises to him. The trust between them fractures, leaving Mark Antony to travel to Anitok, where he summons his staunch ally and financial supporter Cleopatra. Plutarch po- poetically describes Mark Antony as dire evil, as his passion for Cleopatra reignites, overcoming any rational consideration for Rome. Yeah, he just saw her again. Yeah, Cleopatra, who spent the winter of 37 BCE, 30 and 36 BCE engages in negotiations with Mark Antony. With four years of stability and prosperity on the Egypt's belt, she finds herself in a stronger bargaining power. You forget that Cleopatra during that time, and I guess this is the problem of like her always being like considered like a, a temptress. You forget she's a she's a capable like she took Egypt out of two financial economic yeah. problems, and under Egypt she was able to control Cyprus, a good hold on the Mediterranean. She did a good job. She was a she was for all accounts like a pretty powerful leader, you know, which we I think history tends to forget because she's caught up in a lot of Rome's yeah. bullshit. And Romans wrote the history book. So Mark Anthony needs Cleopatra's support, and from her perspective, the return of the lost Eastern uh, Empire of Ptolemy II is a justifiable demand. She's like, I want the Eastern province back. Uh, Mark Anthony, influenced by both the necessity and policy alignment, agrees to Cleopatra's terms. Like, I'll give you the Eastern part, which is big. She controls the Eastern part of the Mediterranean. Yeah. So you're talking about Cham, like uh, the Levant. Nevertheless, uh, Octavian's subsequent reaction and ensuing propaganda underscores the divergent opinions within the Roman elite. In a remarkable turn of events, Cleopatra swiftly gains control over the vast territory. So she controls Cyprus, Crete, Syria, Phoenicia, Cilia, and Nabatea, which is Jordan. Nice. Only Judah remains beyond her grasp. She didn't control the land of the Judah, which is, I guess, modern-day Palestine, because it's uh, declared as a domain of the newly installed King Herod. It's crazy that around this time, um, that's supposedly when Jesus was born, around this period of 36 BCE, right? Or no, like 36 before he was born, technically. Yeah, he was born 0 BCE. Yeah. Mm. So it's interesting how this is all happening around that time. Yeah, that's why God needed to get involved. Yeah, he's like, Jesus. <laughs> yeah, as if like, like you all need God, son. Yeah, seeing Mark Anthony today, he's like, okay, these guys need Jesus. Nevertheless, Cleopatra's influence and wealth soar even higher as she strikes lucrative deals with the Jews and the Nabataeans, securing land leases. So the Nabataeans is considered the securing land leases and extracting resources such as bitumen from the Dead Sea. Herod, recognizing the political climate, even agrees to collect taxes on Cleopatra's behalf. Again, it goes to show she was a very more than capable leader. Leader, yeah. Everyone's acquiescing to her. Exactly. The relationship, like she was the, I guess the last golden age for Egypt, you know? So the relationship between Octavian and Mark Anthony hangs on the brink of irreparable damage. A ferocious propaganda war begins between both of them in the heart of Rome, unleashing a torrent of words and accusations against each other. Octavian's voice reverberates through the city, accusing Mark Anthony as the murderer of Sectus Pompey, of tarnishing Rome's reputation and imprisoning the Armenian king and seizing foreign territories. 
including the coveted land of Egypt. With a demand for his fair share of the spoils, uh, Octavian strikes Antony at his core, right? In retaliation, Mark Antony unleashes his own barrage of uh, accusations. He says that Octavian has stole a lady named Livia Dorsella, a pregnant bride, from her rightful husband. Anthony bemoans Octavian's removal of Lepidus from his office, an act de- deemed unlawful, and the misappropriation of lands belonging to Lepidus and Sectus. Anthony also demands his rightful portion of the spoil to uh, Octavian. He's like, you owe me. Because the whole Octavian marriage stuff, yeah. Octavian's campaign receives a, a sudden surge of support as one of Mark Anthony's friends uh, decides to align himself with Octavian. And he agrees with everything Octavian says. Plancus, alongside with his uh, nephew, Marcus Titus, also defect to their side, leaving Mark Anthony. These are all like Mark Anthony's allies in they the Senate. Dip, yeah. Bringing them with a cachet of secrets, you know what I mean, about Mark Anthony, concealed and safeguarded by Vestal virgins. <laughs> so what's these secrets? It's about Mark Anthony's will. Wow. So the document was seized by Octavian, the will. He begins to use it as a weapon. Uh, before the Senate, Octavian dramatically unveils and reads extracts from Mark Anthony's will, or at least what he claims to be extracts from Mark Anthony's will. It said that Mark Anthony affirms that Caesarian, the offspring of Caesar, is the true heir. Wow. which sends shockwaves through the chambers. Such declarations seen as highly provocative, highly provocative, wow. <laughs> highly provocative, uh, deeply and deeply unsettling. The legacies left by Antony to his uh, children born of Caesar is also seen both as illegal and a sign of his moral decay, which, okay, like like the fact that like he uh, announced or affirms that Caesarian is the son of Caesar in Rome, you're saying that like a foreign kid has the right to, to control, the, uh, to take over Rome. You give legitimacy. He, he mockingly scoffs at Mark Anthony's sentimental wish that when he dies or upon his demise, his lifeless body should be paraded through Rome, uh, through Rome before being transported to Egypt for his burial. Oh wow! Yeah, he read that and he was mocking it while he was reading it. Whispers of Mark Anthony's unnatural sub, uh, subservience to Cleopatra spread like wildfire, like pretty much dancing upon the lips of every Roman citizen. Everyone was talking about Mark Anthony and Cleopatra. Tales of Cleopatra's demand, her insatiable hunger for power and knowledge, her acquisition of the great library of Pregamon, her audacious recruitment of Roman soldiers to do her personal bidding and to be her personal guards. Um, rumors about Mark Anthony willing to reduce the, um, like he was willing to live a life of a slave for her, tasked with, hum- with humbling duty of rubbing Cleopatra's feet during banquets. A symbol of his submission, you know what I mean? So being a simp. Yeah, pretty much. So Mark Anthony, once a proud Roman, now treads a treacherous path. He contemplates forsaking his beloved city and casting aside his loyalty and establishing a new capital in Egypt. You know? The specter of Rome losing its hold on him grows stronger as Anthony willingly embraces foreign custom and practices. He designates his headquarters as the palace, adorning himself with oriental daggers at his side. Above all, the portrayal of Mark Anthony and Cleopatra as divine beings strikes in the hearts and minds of all the Roman people, right? Images and statues depict Mark Anthony as Osiris or Dionysus, while Cleopatra assumes the visage of Selene or Isis. Such depictions fuel rumors of enchantment, bewitchment, uh, that not only grips Anthony, but also holds influence over him. Cleopatra is whispered dreams of extending her dominion over the Romans themselves. So they felt like Cleopatra was, was going. She was seducing him to take over Rome. And she was yeah. like, she was the mastermind behind the whole... And it's not that far-fetched if her son's going to take over. Yeah. Officially, Octavian uh, finds Mark Anthony's claims laughable. He dismisses him. He views, uh, he views the supposed connection between Mark Anthony and Dionysus as nothing more than just delusion born from excessive drinking. 
Uh, Mark Anthony insists that he is Dionysus. You know what I mean? Uh, and Octavian then begins to insist that he is the embodiment of reason and moderation as a- Apollo. Apollo. Yeah. So you see now what's happening. Mark yeah. Anthony is Dionysus. Octavian is Apollo. The classic. Classic. With each passing day, Octavian's propaganda machine gains more momentum. Mark Anthony is forced to counteract by grub the growing influence and publishes a pamphlet, considered now lost in the annals of history. It's called On His Sobriety. That was the pamphlet. Deep. A desperate attempt to defend himself against the charge of being a drunk. So like he wrote an essay on how he's not a drunk. Mark Anthony is turned to launch personal attacks. He aims at Octavian's weaknesses. He paints Octavian as a man of despicable origin who's tainted by, get this, okay, uh, tainted by his past as Caesar's youngest lover. That's a big claim. Oh. He's willing to marry his daughter off to foreign barbarians. His alleged uh, cowardness in the face of battle. Mark Anthony weaves tales of how Octavian's grooming habits, yeah, claiming that he singes his hair on his legs with walnut shells, like he shaves his legs. So like trying to masculine mm. In a time of dire scarcity and as hunger gnaws at the beliefs of Roman people, Mark Anthony starts saying that Octavian holds lavish private banquets and he eats an excessive amount of food during times of famine. He calls it the Feast of the Divine Twelve, a blasphemous scene where Octavian and his 11 guests masquerading as gods and goddesses consume a lavish abundance of food and wine. Octavian, according to Mark Anthony, is not merely Apollo, a radiant god of light and knowledge, but Apollo the torturer, the tormentor embodying the darker aspects of the deity. It's like if he's Apollo, then he's not the Apollo of light, he's Apollo of war. Thus, the stage is set for an epic clash, a battle waged with not with swords and shields, but with words and perceptions. The fate of Rome... Sounds like this tracks, mm -hmm. Biggie and Tupac. This begins the clash between Mark Anthony and Octavian. And I guess this is the last part, or before the aftermath. Cleopatra and Mark Anthony find themselves amid a crucial period... They assemble a formidable fleet in the bustling city of Ephesus. Here they are joined by a staggering number of senators in Rome who want to side with Mark Anthony. As many as 300 Roman senators side with them. This display of support serves as a stark reminder that not everyone in Rome was under Octavian's persuasion. Uh, however, Cleopatra's presence did not even receive a, rock, a warm welcome. The senators believing that they are supporting Mark Anthony rather than they're supporting Egypt. Yeah, but then it seemed like... Cleo- but this is beginning to look like a war between Egypt and Rome. Mm. They deem Cleopatra unfit to be in the war cabinet. Uh, they question the role of a woman in such matters, yet Mark Anthony, recognizing Cleopatra's wisdom and experience and her substantial financial contribution to the campaign, argues that she needs to stay in the war cabinet. She did have a good track record. Too. She did, yeah. As the financially strapped Octavian struggles to finance his fleet, Cleopatra, Mark Anthony, and their forces embark on a journey of the, to the enchanting islands of Samos. Uh, here they aim to bolster morale by hosting a grand festival of music and drama. The event becomes a testament of their power and ambition. They're showing, like, we have enough money. Like, we can take care of you guys. Artists from all corners of the empire are compelled to attend, and the island reverberates with the melodies of flutes and strings. In May of 32 BCE, Cleopatra and Mark Antony lead their troops to the revered city of Athens, where they establish their temporary residence. Dio informs us that the Athenians, who had previously extended respect and courtesy to Octavia, now bestow the same to Cleopatra. They embrace Cleopatra. The statue of the Egyptian queen, portrayed as Isis, is erected in the Acropolis, solidifying her presence in the heart of the ancient city during their stay. It is during their stay in Athens that Anthony formally divorces Octavia, dispatching representatives to expel her from his house in Rome. Oh, 
damn. Yeah, it's like, listen, your brothers. Eventually, they relocate to Patras. At this junction, they possess the invasion of Italy, which might have resulted in a triumphant victory. However, Mark Antony hesitates to attack, fearing that the Romans would unite against a foreign invasion should Cleopatra retain command of her troops, and realizing that her Egyptian forces may not obey his orders in her absence. Like if he went, if he went off with the Cleopatra's war. No, even if if he, because he's not going to go in with Cleopatra. He's going to go fight alone. But he was worried that if he went with her Egyptian troops, what if they rebelled against him later? Not just that, like Egyptians killing Romans. It looks bad. Anthony and Cleopatra bide their time waiting for Octavian forces to leave Italy so they could engage in battle of neutral ground. They will meet outside. In late 32 uh, BCE, Mark Antony suffers a severe blow as the Roman Senate formally strip him from all his titles. Now he becomes persona non grata, right? Uh, finally, Octavian, donning the ceremonial uh, garments, stands before the temple of Bellona in Campus Myrtus with a wooden javelin in hand, symbolically hurling it at an invisible enemy. This ancient rite is a declaration of war. The charges brought against her are remarkably vague, like he declares war and has to justify. He simply labeled that she's as her acts. He's going against her acts. Uh, according to ancient rituals, Octavian sh- should have sought the comp- uh, compensation from Cleopatra. So he should have went to Cleopatra first before launching his javelin and saying, you're being charged with this. Are you going to pay or no? If she refuses, then it's, war. then it's war. But this customary step is conveniently overlooked. It's perplexing to determine what specific anti-Roman act Cleopatra could have committed, but by association, Mark Antony becomes a quasi-form a foreign enemy severed from his Roman roots. Octavian, seasoned admiral Marcus Agrippa, seizes the Egyptian naval base in Mithon, launching an assault on Cleopatra's supply vessels and Mark Antony's scattered fleet. Simultaneously, Octavian's army captures Corfu and establishes a camp at Actium, overlooking the Gulf of Am- Ambrica. Cleopatra and Antony also flee northward. Northward, They seek refugees in Actium but find themselves trapped at bay and cut off from their vital supplies. The camp faces deteriorating conditions with severed supply lines, rampant disease, and plummeting morale. In August, Mark Antony's ships make a valiant but unsuccessful attempt to break free from the blockade. Plutarch reveals that the striking number involved in the upcoming battle. Cleopatra and Mark Antony have amassed a formidable force, uh, like a for- have amassed a force of 500 warships, 100,000 legionnaires, heavily armed inf- infantry, and 12,000 cavalry backed by notable kings and allies. Octavian, though outnumbered, he only had 250 ships, 80,000 infantry, and 12,000 cavalry. I guess same. With better, but he had better equipped fleet, right? And he had also Agrippa. Mm. Uh, Anthony starts to General Crassus. Uh, suggests retreating to Macedon, but Cleopatra disagrees and plans to escape to Egypt, disguising it as a preparation for naval battle. She's like, okay, I want to go back to Egypt and just present this. Uh, Dio's account confirms Cleopatra and Mark Antony's united decision to retreat, and their troops become aware that something extraordinary is unfolding. After a series of skirmishes, defections, and unfavorable weather, the, mom- the, mon- the momentous sea battle at Actium erupts on September 2nd, 31 BCE. Mark Antony's fleet faces challenges from Octavian's better prepared forces. During the battle, Cleopatra's fleet abandons the fight and escapes, followed by Mark Antony. Plutarch portrays Cleopatra as the antagonist in this whole story, uh, as of course they would. Yeah. Uh, so when she fleet, they, they kind of like play that it's not like a tactical fleet, like abandoning, like tactical retreat. Away. No, she's, she ran away and ditched Mark Antony. For all we know, Mark Antony, like, you go, I'll follow, you know? Yeah. yeah. Um, like Anaxanamun. Yeah, yeah, they yeah they can't put her as Anaxanamun. Yeah, 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 
his emo <laughs> To be honest, like as bad as the second movie was, uh, I mean, like as much as it didn't live up to the first movie, that ending was it. It pulls on the heartstrings, and like how she ran, Rachel Vice ran to Ben and Phaedra, but Knox on the Moon ran away, and he's like, and he sees this. <laughs> and he still tried to save him. He, yeah, Very yeah. <laughs> that was improvised. You think we should put the mummy soundtrack somewhere? Mm-hmm. Maybe when Cleopatra and Caesar meet, we could play that a bit of that soundtrack. Yeah. Okay, Octavian's fleet captured Mark Antony's fleet, resulting in a significant loss of men and ships. Antony's ground forces have also been defeated, as most soldiers begin to defect to Octavian. Mark Antony and Cleopatra survive and reunite, but Mark Antony's support base is really dwindling. Mark Antony event- eventually uh, discovers the betrayal from his loyal troops, leading him to contemplate suicide before even meeting Cleopatra. Like before he goes to Alexandria, he contemplated suicide. Cleopatra, concerned about the intimate danger of civil unrest, heads straight to Alexandria because don't forget she still has a city to run and her kid is still barely of age. Before arriving, before news of Actium's defeat reaches the city, so she went. She went to like I guess. Fixed the narrative. She cunningly deceives her people by entering the harbor in a triumph in a triumphant manner, adorned with the garlands on bows of her vessel and musicians playing celebratory tunes. Huh. Uh, Dio's account suggests that sh- uh, she lulls her people into a false sense of security. She initiates a brutal killing spree, and she kills her all her potential enemies in the city. Now, there's no truth of that. That they also say that the king of Armenia and his family were held hostage and executed by Cleopatra. Again. Uh, nothing proves that and that she stole money from her temples and her states which again nothing proves that this is just what Dio writes and Dio has a Roman bias it doesn't like it would make sense that she would maximize her resources but she would not kill go on the killing spree because Alexandrians have a tendency of taking people to the gymnasium and hanging them yeah you know what I mean Upon his arrival at Alexandria, Mark Antony finds Cleopatra's. he finds that Cleopatra's partially completed mausoleum is filled with an array of treasures uh, and safeguarded by piles of flammable material. Cleopatra intends to send the mausoleum ablaze if Octavian gets to her shore. So they don't get her money. She imagine putting all her treasures there. Mm-hmm. And it's like, if he comes, I'm setting this shit on fire. Damn. Um, the, an act that would truly horrify Octavian. He, he was kind of relying on Cleopatra's riches to, um, to appease his soldiers. She's smart. He's like, listen, we get Egypt, I'll pay you with what, whatever treasures Egypt have. Octavian's soldiers have been on the verge of mutiny as well because they're getting tired of Friday the battle. Pay, yeah. Upon returning to Cleopatra's palace, Mark Anthony and Cleopatra start a new society called the Partners in Death. Uh, this smaller, more tightly knitted group of friends choose to face death by reveling themselves in the excesses before. Like, let's go out, you know? I mean, let's just live life to its fullest because we're going to die tomorrow. During the winter of 31st and 30 BCE, a Caesarian, who's now 16 years old, uh, and his 14-year-old stepbrother reach adulthood. A Caesarian has now enrolled in the Alexandrian Ephibes, a list of young male citizens, while um, Antilius or donned the purple hem toga, signifying his Roman citizenship. Uh, this ceremonial act was a propaganda aimed to rem- uh, reminding the conservative Egyptians that the dynastic line would continue through the adult male king and assuring the population at last that the two sons could potentially succeed Cleopatra and Mark Antony if necessary. According to Plutarch, it was during that time that Cleopatra began experimenting with various poisons. Mm. Uh, she assembled a collection of deadly poisons and tested their effectiveness by admis- administering them to her prisoners. Wow. 
facing the, who were facing death sentences. Uh, she discovered that the faster-acting poisons intensified the pain of death, while the milder ones were slower but less ag- agonizing. Uh, Cleopatra even observed how venomous animals attacking attacked one another to study their effective uh, effectiveness. Venom. Qu- among her experiments, she found that a bite of an asp uh, induced a tranquil sleepiness and sinking sensation without con- convulsions or cries, accompanied by a gentle perspiration on the face and an, an experience like deep sleep. In Asia Minor, though, Octavian receives numerous messages from Egypt, creating a complex web of delicate negotiations with people. Cleopatra pleads with Octavian, desperately seeking permission to abdicate in the favor of her children. She's like, listen, I'll leave the throne, but just um, promise my kids will take over, hoping to secure their future. Uh, Again, one thing we, we tend to forget is that how much devoted she was to keeping her kids. her kids. Kind of, if you remember when we did the episode on the anarchy, the English Civil War, and when Matilda... She kind of said, I'm willing to let go, but if you promise my son will be fo- would yeah. follow you in succession. Yeah, yeah. We always forget that at the end of the day, they are mothers. You True. know what I mean? And they raise their kids alone, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Hoping to secure their future amidst the looming threat of Octavian's impending conquest. On the other hand, Mark Anthony, aware of this dire situation, requests permission to retire to Athens as a private citizen, perhaps seeking to escape the mounting pressure and responsibilities that weigh heavily upon him. However, Mark Anthony's uh, request remains unanswered leaving him in a state of uncertainty and anxiety. In contrast, Cleopatra receives a response, albeit one with chilling condition. Octavian conveys that he will consider her request to abdicate only if either she eliminates Mark Anthony or formally renounces him, wow. effectively severing their long-standing tie and relationship. That's a fair request. You think so? Yeah. Uh, As a ruler, I would make that request. To get... Denounce him. Denounce Mark Anthony? Yeah. Thrissius, Octavian's, uh, I guess, freed man, becomes the mediator between this in this negotiation, right? Cleopatra engages in frequent private conversations with him, again fueling Mark Anthony's tense and irritable disposition on the whole situation. He becomes more paranoid and suspicious. He becomes deeply distrustful of, of the free man's uh, motives. Fueled by his distrust, Mark Anthony takes a drastic measure, measure and orders the free man to be whipped as a warning and sends him back to Octavian with the stern message, stating that if Octavian disagrees with his action, he has liberty to punish Mark Anthony's own free man. Uh, this escalating tension between Cleopatra and Mark Anthony prompts Cleopatra to respond with flattery. Attempting to soothe Mark Anthony's suspicion, she keeps him in her favor. She organizes a grand, a grand celebration on his birthday showering him with affection and downplaying her own significance. Unbeknownst to Mark Antony, Cleopatra had already sent Octavian extravagant gifts, symbolizing the, her kingdom's sovereignty, such as a golden specter, a golden crown, and a royal throne. So she was planning to get rid of Mark. It's, it's, it's again a cunning move. Like, However, Mark Antony's misjudgment of Octavian's response leads him to make, to make a desperate offer. Mark Antony ends up offering to take his own life if it means sparing Cleopatra. Wow. Mm. What a romantic guy. He never responds back about that. You got to keep him... Octavius is... Uh, he's like, playing it well. Mm, he's keeping him in uncertainty, huh? Yeah. In the summer of 30 BCE, Egypt faces a dual attack from Cornelius Gallus in the west and Octavian in the east. Rumors circulate about Cleopatra potentially surrendering uh, uh, the city of Placium to Octavian to secure clemency for her and her children. But conflicting accounts of her ruthless action cast doubt on this claim. With Octavian's forces advancing towards Alexandria, Anthony rush, uh, rushes to defend his city. Uh, sweaty and bloodied from battle, Mark Anthony presents his bravest soldier to Cleopatra, seeking her support. 
Tragically, the soldier defects to Octavian <laughs> that very night, taking the precious golden armor gifted by Cleopatra. They were just losing, man. Trapped and desperate, Mark Antony resorts to bribery, attaching promises to, of riches to arrows aimed at Octavian's camp. Like, he would put notes and... Yeah, that's smart. And, like, he would, he would shoot them at Octavian's camp, and Octavian remains steadfast, refusing to be lured into a confrontation. Undeterred, Mark Antony decides to face Octavian on the battlefield. He's like, this is the only way. Realizing that... This is his last chance to determine his fate and the fate of Egypt and Cleopatra. The impending clash holds the destiny of these two historical figures in balance, right? I guess now, uh, the ending. The final act three. As the cloak of night drapes in the city in its murky embrace, Mark Anthony experiences an overwhelming sense of abandonment. The gods whom he has fervently clung on to, relied for triumph, forsake him. Their ethereal departure resonates through the gates of Alexandria echoing with a haunting intensity, as if they're, they're abandoning Mark Anthony, journeying towards Octavian's camp. The people of the city, already teetering on the precipice of fear and anticipation, are further unsettled by the eerie phenomenon. Some perceive this as an ominous sign, an indication that the god whom Mark Anthony aligned himself has renounced him. In the realm of the Greco-Roman mythology, it was the belief that capricious gods often deserted those who destined to be vanquished in battle. Thus, the departure signified Mark Anthony's intimate mortal vulnerability. As the sun rises on the 1st of August, Mark Anthony, befret of divine protection, leads his, leads his troops through the city gate, advancing solemnly towards the great hippodrome. Simultaneously, the mighty Egyptian fleet sets sail, their destruction veering eastward, eager to confront the formidable Roman armada. Yet to Anthony's dismay, his fleet surrenders without a fight surrendering their oars as a solemn salute to Octavian's overwhelming might. Witnessing the catastrophic loss, his soldiers promptly desert uh, their commander. Only his infantry display steadfast loyalty, remains by his side. Nonetheless, it becomes overwhelming lopsided battle, and Antony is defeated. He is forced to retreat into the heart of Alexandria, grappling with the unbearable suspicion that Cleopatra, his confidant and lover, may have betrayed him. Oh, wow. Almost instantly, a chilling rumor spreads like wildfire, asserting that Cleopatra had taken her own life. Mark Antony, burdened with the weight of his demise, realizes that his time has come. With a heavy heart, he unfastens the clasp of his breastplate and implores his faithful servant, Eros, to assist him in his quest of release. Eros draws his own sword, and Mark Antony points it to his chest and tells him to stab through. But in a profound act of loyalty, he turns the blade upon himself, and Eros ends up sacrificing his own life, then carrying out his master's desperate request. Left alone, Mark Anthony grasps fate by putting his hand on the sword, but he ends up slipping on Eris' blood and he cuts through. Oh, wow. Mark Anthony collapses, his voice echoing through the hushed air. Through me to said, Cleopatra, I do not mourn our impending separation, for I shall join you, but I grieve that a leader of my stature has proven inferior in the courage to a woman. Through and through. As Anthony teeters to the precipice of oblivion, Cleopatra's secretary arrives and he tells him that the queen is still alive. How? Mm. Amidst the unfolding turmoil, Cleopatra sought refuge in the mausoleum, mausoleum where she hides her all her treasures. That's where she went in hiding. In a grandeur matched only by the wolf concealed in it, behind its fortified wall, Cleopatra barricades herself. Hidden from the prying eyes, this grand structure, still incomplete, stands as a symbol of Egypt's illustrious queen, awaiting the final touches to become her eternal resting place. Meanwhile, Mark Anthony, weakened by the torrents of his own blood, is carried to the tomb. They carried him to the mausoleum, hoisted upon its wall and gently guided through the upper floor window to reunite with Cleopatra, allowing him to breathe his last breath within her embrace. As Octavian marches victoriously through Alexandria, 
he discovers Cleopatra trapped within the mausoleum. Yet Octavian is resolute in his objectives, intent on keeping Cleopatra alive so he could triumph her back in Rome. And more crucially, to prove. Mm, and more crucially so he could preserve the awe-inspiring treasures of Egypt for his glory. But his main idea, he wanted Cleopatra to walk ahead of him in the triumph. Octavian dispatches confidant named Gassius to negotiate with Cleopatra, aiming to convince her to leave her sanctuary and return to her palace. She refused to be swayed. Cleopatra stands irresolute and beseeches for her children to leave safely, to give safe passage to her kids. Gassius refrains from making any concrete promises. Seizing an opportunity, he scales the mausoleum walls, approaching Cleopatra, but one of her attendants catch him. Cleopatra contemplates killing herself, but he disarms her and takes her back to Octavian. Later, Cleopatra meets Octavian in a deteriorated state. She justified her actions that she, was, she did it out of fear of Mark Anthony. Although she tries to appeal to his mercy with her treasures, Octavian um, isn't... Uh, Interesting. Yeah. He's pretty ruthless. Mm. Octavian witnesses his resilience and determination to survive, and as the tale unfolds, the fate of Egypt's last queen hangs in the balance. However, Dio's account of Cleopatra's encounter with Octavian presents a stark contrast. He says that Cleopatra t- tried to captivate Octavian and tried to almost seduce him invoking memories of Caesar. However, Octavian remains stoic, resisting her feminine charm and offering only words of encouragement. Cleopatra attempts to plead for her life and, inv- and try to invoke trust in Octavian, but it's a futile. Cleopatra, she might have like, uh, her, her saying like, I have hidden treasures, I'll show you, might be a way to deceive him because she thought that's how they're going to live. Yeah. Uh, she could live. But but yeah, but uh, maybe he also, I don't know. So some people don't understand like how she could have... Um, like she wanted to kill herself, but he wanted to stop her. But then again, he didn't want to be the one to kill her. So this conflating uh, thing. The thing is, suicide, like, and trigger warning. Suicide in Rome, in Egyptian and Greek um, mythology, is kind of has different thing, different significance. Maybe like her her suicide kind of falls into the Greek mythology. In Egypt, it's kind of forbidden mm-hmm. to um, kill yourself. Yeah, but Cleopatra did try to hang, kill herself uh, once before but uh, Octavian stops her. Uh, Plutarch recounts that the circumstances surrounding Cleopatra's suicide which appears to be triggered by a clandestine message possibly leaked from one of members of Octavian's staff. According to the message Octavian had made a resolution to send Cleopatra and his children to Rome within the next three days. Realizing that her time was running out Cleopatra urgently requested permission to visit Mark Anthony's tomb. She expressed her desire to pour libations for Mark Anthony paying, paying her final respects. Transported to the tomb she embraces Mark Anthony's lifeless remains and delivers up speech. Dear Anthony, I recently buried you with hands that still possessed freedom. Yet now, as captive, I pour these libations for you. My body restrained and guarded so closely that I cannot deface it with blows or tears. This body once freed is now enslaved, destined to grace the triumph over you. No more honors or libations shall you receive. These are the final tributes from Cleopatra, now a captive. Although in life nothing could separate us, in death it seems our roles will, will reverse. You, the Roman, shall rest buried here while I, the hapless woman, will lie in Italy, obtaining only a fraction of your homeland as my resting place. If indeed the gods of the land hold any power or might, I beseech you, do not abandon your wife while she still lives. Do not permit the triumph to be celebrated over me in my person. Instead, conceal and bury me here with you. And for all the countless misfortunes I have endured, none is great and dreadful as the short time I have lived apart from you. 
I'm not sure you love them too. Returning to the palace, Cleopatra took a luxurious bath, adorned herself with regal attire, and indulged in a splendid meal. Once the meal concluded, she dismissed her servants and retained only her chairman and her Irias, her hairdresser by her side, before retiring the night. The decision to die in the presence of her female attendants it was a practical one. Even in death, a chaperone was needed. The prospect of a female suicide held horror that strangers might catch a glimpse of the body, partially or fully unclothed. So upon reading Cleopatra's message, which included the final request to be buried alongside Mark Antony, so Octavian intercepted the message. He realized that the queen was on the verge of taking her own life. Soldiers swiftly rushed to the palace, bypassing the oblivious guard stationed outside Cleopatra's chamber. Upon opening the doors, they discovered Cleopatra lying lifeless on a golden couch. Eras lying dying at her feet, while her chairman, already feeling the effects of the poison, desperately attempting to straighten the diatom adorning her mistress's brow. Their arrival came too late. Cleopatra's death remains a sealed room mystery. No one knows how she passed away. Uh, while it's widely believed that she's chosen to die by, by a snake bite, I mean, or that's like the romantic way of... It's probably the poisons she tested. Uh, the exact method remains uncertain. Some speculate that she used an asp concealed in a water jar dropped and dipped a pin in the poison and pricked herself. However, the absence of clear evidence complicates the narrative. Suicide by a snake bite is, presents significant risks and challenges, making the logistics very hard. For you to have a snake bite you... Yeah, you have to be... And then bite the other people too. Yeah. Despite these uncertainties, death by a snake bite holds a symbolic... It holds, like, symbolically aligns with culture and mythological motifs surrounding the Egyptians. Because, you know, in Egypt... Snake. snake no and a snake has a powerful connotation you know yeah octavian allows her to organize mark anthony's funeral as she wishes as she wishes despite numerous generals and king requesting his body for burial octavian does not take anthony away from cleopatra instead he puts them in the pretty respectful mm, of that stuff right yeah like she overall he seemed pretty respectful of cleo see it's interesting because like like at the same time like he did want to parade her in rome at the same time, he did, he was kind of, he did, I think, acknowledge that she was a queen. And for a queen, she had her own, you know, I mean, her own, um, her own prestige, if you will. There's kind of like rumors that Mark Anthony, because Mark Anthony, we don't know what happened to him. But we might anticipate that he had, uh, so Plutarch says that Cleopatra was embracing Mark Anthony's ashes when she passed away. Maybe he was cremated. And then, like, you know, differing accounts. Anyways, Octavian, despite being troubled by Cleopatra's demise, admi admires her spirit, right? He issues orders for her body to be buried alongside Mark Antony in a splendid and regal fashion. Additionally, Cleopatra's women receive honorable burials as well, uh, as per Octavian's instructions. Uh, unfortunately, the joint tomb of Cleopatra and Mark Antony, like most of the Ptolemaic royal tombs, lie submerged in the Mediterranean Sea on the coast of Alex. Yeah, and this is the end of Cleopatra. In the end, Cleopatra's defeat is commemorated yeah, in a, Rome. She got a very regal Yeah. Yeah, she did. Uh, there's a statue of her laying on her deathbed with two snakes, known as the twin snakes of death. Yeah, classic. Renowned poets of the Augustan era, like Horace, Virgil, uh, reference this imagery in their works. The artists, I mean, you have artists, Shakespeare. She was almost romanticized yeah, because of her death. Depict the and Octavian gave her that romantic send-off. Yeah, and the, and the issue, like we said, the image of the snake uh, like biting her breast is infamous throughout history. Even Shakespeare writes that's how she dies at the end of uh, Cleo, uh, Cleopatra and Anthony, Anthony and Cleopatra. After Cleopatra's death on August 12, 30 BCE, Octavian annexes Egypt on August 31st, 30 BCE, like the day after, like literally two weeks after, he just annexed the country. 
During his time, her son Caesarion faces capture and execution. Her other son, her other son, uh, meets a tragic end, betrayed by his tutor. His tutor kills him. Mark Antony's surviving children from Cleopatra are taken to Rome, where they are paraded during uh, during a public triumph. Cleopatra's uh, Cleopatra Selene, one of Cleopatra's daughters from Mark Antony, marries King Juba II, the Numidian prince, who uh, they become the ruling king of Mauritania. So Cleopatra's reign ends up in Mauritania, which is which is where Augustus sends her. Like he sends her to Mauritania to look after it. Um, as after the political changes in Egypt, the daily lives of the Egyptian remains largely unaffected between the between rulers. Octavian ruled Egypt differently from previous conquerors. He dis- disregarding Egyptian customs and beliefs. However, Egyptian culture culture began to influence Roman society, with Egyptian artifacts becoming popular in Rome. Cleopatra's treasure financed Octavian's political career and adorned Roman monuments. Her image was venerated in Egypt and portrayed on coins and temple walls as Cleopatra Isis. Yet the Roman propaganda machine vilified her for years to come after. Uh, Octavian curated his own personal narrative. He reduced Cleopatra's story to her relationship with Julius Caesar Mark Anthony, depicting her as an immoral foreign woman. This is... This is... Yeah, it served to show that Octavian's goal was defender of Rome versus foreign leaders. So this is the Roman portrayal, right? Arab historical accounts of Cleopatra portray her positively when the Arabs took over, focusing on her political achievements rather than her romantic relationships. Unfortunately, these accounts were largely overlooked by Western Egyptologists until recently. In the West, uh, Cleopatra's image transformed from a, mus- from a monstrous figure to a, to a beauty associated with the biblical Eve, and admired for her loyalty to, to her man. Shakespeare contributed this portrayal, like we said, uh, and it became so commercialized. Uh, modern representation often distorted the hi- history, um, and of course, this accumulates in what we get to Cleopatra today. When you say the name Cleopatra, you think of a beautiful foreign, like the Oriental queen yeah, that yeah. seduces men, you know, that's yeah. a temptress, you know? And this is the story of Cleopatra, Aim. Fascinating story. I think the surprising fact is that how much of a, when she ruled Egypt, she she was very prosperous with her. It was the infatuation with the Roman link that brought her down. It is. It's it's the connection with Rome that brought her down. Like she got, she really got. Has she just just done her own thing and not tried to come back to Rome. She got swept in a civil war that was not from her doing. But she should have just let it be. Yeah. Not get involved. And that was kind of she her. She chose the wrong side. So. Yeah. Well, she at first it seemed like she did the right side. Like I mean, she picked Mark Anthony and Octavian. They won. She picked Caesar. He won. You know. Sure. But yeah. But now, with, like with Cleopatra, now um, she still lives in the public imagination. Oh, still very relevant. Yeah. We still they still make movies on her. Um, controversial. I mean, uh, forget the documentary. I think Gal Gadot is playing Cleo. Yeah. To quote Jay Z. Um. Okay. But yeah, but she still lives in the public imagination. I think after Tutankhamun, Cleopatra could be the most second most famous Egyptian royalty. Yeah, probably in terms of Western media. Uh, in terms of Western media. Anyways, aim. So this was the story of Cleopatra. It's like I was surprised on how interesting it was. There was a story. It's like it's everything you want in the story. There's romance. There's betrayal. There's war. There's death. There's death. death. Um. Romantic, like romantic death, even. So I think it's yeah. I think Cleopatra makes for an interesting story. I think um, even if you fo- like, a lot of people try to focus on the romance. I think politically, it's also a great narrative, and it's good to remember that like back when there were female leaders who were 
capable of uh, taking the country to a golden age, right? She, we forget that Cleopatra conquered a good amount of land. Yeah. Yeah. Anyways, so this was today's episode. I hope you all enjoyed it. And I think what we learned from Cleopatra, of course, by Cleopatra's uh, demise, we get the Roman, the official start of the Roman Empire, right? Or the age of Roman emperors. Augustus was able to push Rome into a golden age after this. And this is where we get the Roman Empire. Egypt will never again rise to such prominence. Or I think for the longest time, if I'm not mistaken, aim. Egypt will be conquered by foreign leaders up until the, Jamal Abdel Nasser. That was the end of the Egyptian empire. That was, that was the end of Egypt being ruled. Ancient Egypt, people would say, yeah. Yeah, or Egypt being ruled by, by an Egyptian-born ruler um, until Jamal Abdel Nasser would become ruler. But yeah, but ever since Cleopatra, it would always be ruled by foreigners. But then again, you could say she's a foreigner too. Yeah, she was Macedonian. Yeah, Macedonian. Um, yeah, so this was a story of Cleopatra. Next week, I think Aim is going to take over. Or two, no, wait. Next time, I think Aim is going to take over. He doesn't want to say what it's going to be about, but um, you don't want to give a hint? I'll see you, man. I, see, I don't know. I have to prepare. Okay. And yeah, and this was the story of Cleo. I hope you guys enjoyed it. Yeah, Tony, it's the story of Cleo. So have a good night, guys, and we'll see you next time. Yep. See you later, guys.